girls in a fruit fight. Every color of day. Whirling around at night. I'm playing this music. So the young girl will come out to meet the monster tonight. Tropical hot dog night Like two flamingos in a fruit fight I don't want to know about wrong or right I don't want to know I'm anywhere tonight Tropical hot dog night Well, there goes the neighborhood. Welcome, everyone. Welcome on this. Oops, I think I have the wrong mic on. Welcome, everybody, on this December 3rd. I think it's our fourth snowstorm of the year already. I guess it goes in circles like this, uh, cycles or circles. When you live in northern Colorado, we had such an easy winter last year, and I think we had two big storms, and that was pretty much it, except for some, some flurries and some morning snow showers here and there. And here it is already. We're not even at winter yet. It's December 3rd. Win winter doesn't officially start until, what, the 20th or, uh, or the, the 21st, whatever it is. You know, here we are, and... We had that one ginormous snowstorm about a month ago that gave us uh, downed trees and branches and power lines and put the, the power out for a period of time. And then we had a little bit of snow like a week later that almost knocked out power again, although it wasn't as big and it, it didn't stay as long. And then a couple of days ago, boom, we get it in the morning, and now we're getting the, the, the second half of it, the tail end. So this is snowstorm number four in the autumn of our years here at UNC. But I am here, live, on the radio with you, on UNC Radio, the radio station of the University of Northern Colorado. My name is Dave and I do this show called Dave's Gone By. I've been doing it since October of 2002. This is going to be our 369th episode. Absolutely amazing. And it's going to be a really, really fun and interesting and great one. We have two, count them, two special guests. One of them is an actress who was in the original Broadway production of Grease. She was also in the original production of The Fantastics, playing Louisa for about two years there. She's done a bunch of other stuff, but, but if you're a former New Yorker like me, or an East Coaster with pretty good um, TV station pickups from, from local... It's kind of hard to explain. She was on a local TV network back in the 1970s, but that show and that station was picked up much the way uh, you know, radio uh, syndicators will pick up shows from local stations. So anyway, if you remember the children's television show The Magic Garden on WPIX-TV, there were those two 
hippie-like chicks who would sit on the swing and had literally a magic garden with a talking squirrel and a tree and the flowers that were giggling all the time. I, I didn't really watch it. I was kind of thought it was a girl's show and I didn't really pay much attention. Sorry. No offense. But anyway, you, you couldn't avoid it. It was on every day. And it looked like a really sweet, cool children's show. And it featured two people, Paula Janice and Carol Dimas. Well, both of them are still alive and well. They're still performing, even though um, I, I believe Paula is a professor and mostly spending her life with that. Carol is involved with her husband's production company, but she still does a lot of music and cabaret. So we're going to be talking to Carol Demas of Broadway and off-Broadway fame, and also of TV's The Magic Garden. We're going to ask her about doing that show, about being on Broadway, about, uh, you know, how she and Paula get along, if they still ever keep in touch. I know the answer to that one, but uh, you'll have to wait until we talk to her in uh, just a well actually very, very shortly, to uh, find out. She'll be calling in just a couple of minutes, in fact. So let me, let me get through the rest of the introduction for this episode of Dave's Gone By. Not only will we have Carol Demas on the phone with us in the neighborhood, but we will have author, playwright Bruce J. Friedman in the neighborhood. Now, Bruce J. Friedman, um, first time I came to know of him was when PBS TV did a... Uh, a telecast of his play, like a, you know, a, a TV staging of his play, Steam Bath. Kind of a controversial play. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about it uh, a bit later on. But he wrote Steam Bath. He also wrote a play called, where is it? Where's his bio? Scuba Duba. That was his first success. He is the author of several novels, including Stern and About Harry Towns. He has also had a hand in, or completely wrote, the screenplays for The Lonely Guy, Stir Crazy, and a little movie called Splash. Yeah, that, Bruce J. Friedman. He's got a new autobiography out called Lucky Bruce. It's a memoir. It's way cool, and I'm going to talk to him about his work and his life on Dave's Gone By. Also, on the show, we will have our usual Bob Dylan Sooner and Later segment, where we play a bunch of Bob Dylan songs about a certain theme. This one is going to be, sadly, about Don DeVito, who was a producer on a bunch of Dylan's best albums in the 1970s. Uh, so we're going to be playing some cuts from albums that Don DeVito produced. DeVito passed away this past week. Also, we will go inside Broadway for some theater news and a farewell to Judd Walden, who was the composer for the musical Raisin, Broadway musical based on Raisin in the Sun, and also our Saturday segue, which uh, we'll be dealing with... Do, 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 do. What is our Saturday segue about this time? Well, you, you'll just have to wait and see. It's a good, oh, rock birthdays. A lot of people born these next few days, so we're going to be playing some songs by people who have a birthday coming up. Among them, Little Richard and Tom Waits, and I think Joan Armitraging is in there. Definitely some great, great music. So all of that today on Dave's Gone By. But first, we're going to be talking very shortly to Carol Demas of Magic Garden and Grease fame. Let's hear a little bit of... Um, well, a, a, a magic garden-ness. This is the garden of make-believe, a magical garden of make-believe, where flowers chuckle and birds play tricks, and a magic tree grows lollipop sticks. Here in the garden, what we say and do, we'd like you to join us and do it too. Can you grow like a rooster? Now they do do And clap your 
your hands and stamp your shoe. It's a funny place, but it's surely true that we'd like to share it all with you. If you sing for me, I'll sing for you. If you cry for me, I'll cry for you. If you scream for me, I'll scream for you. From your hand against sorrow, you'll be watched the petals fall down to the ground. In the last side beside you, I felt the great sadness that day in the garden. And then one day you came back home. You were a creature all in rapture. You had the key to your soul, and you did open. That day you came back to the garden. The old and summer breeze was blowing against your face. Presence of the youth 
of eternal summers in the garden. All right. And as it touched your cheeks so lightly, born again, you were and blushed. And we touched each other lightly. And we felt the presence of the Christ within our hearts. walking through the garden there on UNC Radio on Dave's Gone By. That's right, we are going into the garden courtesy of um, courtesy of our guest, Carol Dimas. I, I, as I mentioned in the opening of the show, she was on Broadway in Greece. She was off-Broadway in a little show called The Fantastics for a few years. She's also been doing a ton of cabaret, and former New Yorkers like me right, might remember her, well, certainly remember her, from a family TV show on WPIX way back when called The Magic Garden. So it is magical to have with us in the studio Carol Dimas. Carol, can, can you hear me? Yes, I can. You sound a little away, but then you are. Oh, oh, hold on, i, I got to get my headphones on. Uh, try that again. Carol, I, I can hear you, definitely. I, I hear you as if you were in Colorado and I'm in New York. <laughs> okay, well, that's... <laughs> it'll do. You, you're a little far away and it's a little difficult to hear you. You're not immediately in my ear as though we were talking on the phone, but I can hear you across the room. You usually like it to be, or if there's something fouled up at your end. Oh, there's always something fouled up around here at this station. <laughs> it's college radio. You know, that's, 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 Can't but, we ask the magic tree to bail us out? I guess not. Well, I hear, but I actually hear you absolutely fine. And, and so and I, I can see by our dials that our listeners do too. So welcome to the neighborhood. It's not quite a magic garden here. It, it, things, things tend to die when I touch them. But other than that, <laughs> other than that, it's fine. So how are you? I'm fine. And I'm wildly busy, which is something I would never have expected at this point in my life, considering that the Magic Garden went on the air 40 years ago. 40? Was it 40? Oh my God. We will be celebrating the 40th birthday of the Magic Garden in 2012, and it happens to also be the 40th anniversary of Greece on Broadway, which is why 13 of us from the original cast are being assembled by Broadway Cares, and we start rehearsals tomorrow morning for a huge event in New York for Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS on Monday and Tuesday, which um, will be a part of the Gypsy of the Year, the annual Gypsy of the Year event. And this year they're kicking off the 40th year of Greece with a seven-minute number at the top of the show in which we are all taking part and singing snippets of the songs that we introduced when Greece opened. Whoa. So that's pretty exciting and there are some amazing people in on the Broadway in the Broadway world involved in presenting the Gypsy of the 
year awards and being the host. And Kim Cattrall will be on stage, Bernadette Peters, Daniel Radcliffe, Hugh Jackman, and Seth Rudetsky, who has a pretty well-known radio show about Broadway um, on Sirius Radio, is the host, as he has been in years past. And while we of the original Greece have an amazing friendship and very strong bonds that have remained over these 40 years, which isn't always the case with shows. You know, oh, certainly. close when you start, yeah. but then time goes on and people drift away from each other, which is natural, and that little family that you created when you were all in this together and didn't know where it was going <laughs> uh, sort of drifts apart, but that hasn't happened for us. So we'll all be together tomorrow, almost all of us, except for the few of us who are no longer living. Well, now, who, I know Kevin Conway is, is gone, but was he in the Broadway or was he just in Jeff? The, he was, yeah. Jeff, Con Jeff, Jeff was the original understudy for all of the men. And when, um, when Barry went to do Barry a Bostwick. film, mm -hmm. Barry yeah. Bostwick, who was the original Danny, went to do a film for a stretch of time. Jeff took over for him. So Jeff and I played opposite each other for a stretch on that kind of um, opened up a whole new adventure in my life and I spent five years living with Jeff. We were very close and I had the honor and, and sadness of singing for his birthday memorial in October out in L.A. Actually, wait, when you say you were, were you just sharing space because you were acting together, or were you a couple? No, we, 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 we loved each other very much. We were very close. We, we had a relationship that was very, very important part of my life, and I remained very close to his sisters um, and love them still. Sure. So we're still kind of a family. Was he... I mean, I'm married... Of course. Almost 30 years happily now to, to Stuart Allen, who is uh, an audio visual designer and was a Broadway designer, sound designer. Um, so I'm, I'm lucky life has been good to me and that my heart has found a place to go. But my relationship with Jeff was a very intense and very deep, loving time for me. I, hadn't, I actually had no idea. There's none of that on the wiki or. or I need that anywhere. Um, but but was he was were drugs a problem when you knew him? Yes, I have to say. He 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 fought he fought it his whole life. I mean they they just they just were a magnet for him. He was a, a very sensitive, talented, beautiful, gentle, funny, dear man. But it was very tough for him to battle those demons, and he just, you know, eventually succumbed to a complication of many things, including pneumonia, but of course his, his body was kind of tired, and he'd had some serious back surgery. Hmm. We'd stayed in touch. I spoke to him not long before he died. Wow. I'm, um, were you ever, did you ever, I'm sure you tried to help him, I mean, was it the drugs that drove you apart? Was it, or um, what was it? Or, and um, was that, that well, feeling you know, that you're it's, it's interesting that this has come up. Yeah, I, I had no idea this would come up. Yeah. It's not something that's generally known and yeah. not something I generally 
talk about. I mean, people in our in our close circle, of course, are well aware of our relationship. And when um, when John Travolta had a memorial for Jeff, uh, not too long after he died, it was very private and it was lovely in an intimate restaurant in Beverly Hills. And that gathering was mostly for people associated with the movie. Mm. Johnny invited my husband Stuart and me. Uh, to to come and be a part of that because it was also for family and he considers me a part of the family oh. and uh, he and Jeff and I were, were close because when, when Johnny was very young and on Broadway and over here his family lived in New Jersey and he lived with his family but on uh, matinee days he didn't want to have to come from New Jersey so he stayed with Jeff and me on Tuesday nights and Friday nights and you know, we got, and we all shared a manager, so we were we were quite a group <laughs> back in the day. And yes, yeah, sorry. Um, you had asked whether I tried to help. Well, of course I tried to help. Well, yeah. But you know, when someone is sharing himself with an addiction issue, as well as with the people who love him, it's not an easy it's not an easy situation. He was never a violent person. Um, he was always gentle. I mean, he, he hurt himself the most. But there's a distance that happens. There's a separation that happens. And there's only so far you can go and so close you can get in, in those kinds of relationships. So but they very often can't last forever, and that was the case with us. And you were smart enough not to be pulled into, I mean, was there ever a problem where you might have gone into the whole drug thing, or you tried it, you didn't like it, or you never even touched no, the stuff? No, no. Um, I think genetically, especially, I'm very blessed that I don't like that stuff. <laughs> I, okay. can't, I mean, I can't say that I don't like a margarita now and then, you know, Okay. and, and, and I think Red wine is one of God's great gifts to the universe. But um, I'm not a heavy drinker. I do like to drink socially. I have never liked drugs. I don't like the feeling of, of not being in control. I don't like where they take me. And I remember having friends in L.A. who, I mean, there were other people we shared our lives with who used to like to come, you know, and, and do whatever it was they were doing, and I just kind of stayed away from it and cooked dinner. <laughs> okay, but, wow. but they would say to me, you know, Carol, you're so lucky because you see and feel the things um, on your own that I feel like I need drugs to find. Hmm. And I thought that was a, an, interesting and, an interesting question, and yet these people, these friends were the most marvelous creative intelligent people and i would say to them but you can you can go there without hallucinating without stuffing poisons into your body i i firmly believe in your in your talent and your you know your creative brain and heart and i think you really you really don't need this stuff to go you just think you do, but easy for me to say, right? Right. I'm, I'm the same way. I mean, I grew up, uh, I'm a total straight arrow, never even tried drugs, honest to, to goodness. I grew up with some people who did and who dabbled and did some minor drug stuff. And I was like, well, you know, I, I can listen to music 
you know, I, I, I've got other ways. Right, that, right. There are there are other there there are so many things that can take you into the creative sphere and those parts of your brain and heart that open up and and um, and help you be closer to many of the wonderful things in life. And I just feel lucky that I never felt the need to. Uh, put something into my body that would take me there and on on one or two occasions that are very vivid for me in my life friends slipped stuff this wasn't something friends should do yeah but um i suddenly felt awful (laughs) you know (laughs) i mean my um my response to that was don't stand there looking at me hoping that i'm suddenly going to join you in and whatever joy it is that you feel when you do this, because that's not how it, I feel. And I'm, you know, I'm really, I think you thought you were doing something good for me, and you knew that I wouldn't do it on my own. But this isn't working, and now I have to, you know, wait until it ends. Huh. And I don't ever want to go here again. Absolutely. That was, and so that was how it was for me. I'm having a conversation with you, a person I've never met in my life. I know. That I think I have almost never had with anyone. And, and uh, I, you not, know, I do not charge... Not entirely, anyway. I charge $95 an hour, by the way. You can make me... Uh, well, uh... <laughs> Call me Dr. Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm only... I, I think there may be some value, maybe to the people who are listening to your show in my sharing this with you, because... I guess what one of the things that's true of all of us is that most of us who are creative are curious, yeah. and um, we don't tend to just wear blinders and just uh, immediately assume that we know what's right and everybody else is wrong. I mean, if we don't reach out and and try to expand our horizons and our minds, we uh, we limit ourselves, and especially for people. In the creative arts, that's that's not a good thing to do. But I just feel like if we have gifts, if we have creative gifts, we are um, maybe capable of exploring so much just with the gifts we were given, and we don't necessarily need poisons to take us beyond the limitations of an ordinary day. I mean, if we if we can learn to be observant and to uh, of the world around us and sensitive to the people we're lucky enough to have in our lives. That just might do the trick. Wow. We were talking with Carol Demas. Uh, I thought we would be talking about the Magic Garden and Broadway. And, you know, we're talking about all this deep stuff. Like, any the other confessions garden, you need to get off your people. chest or anything? Or, you know. Well, people still think, you know, that Paula and I must have been druggies back in the day in the Magic Garden, and that those big mushrooms that we sat on <laughs> were symbolic of something, and they think that we were, you know, they think of us as those two hippie chicks. Yep. And, uh, mm-hmm. Hippie chicks and or lesbians, of which you yes, were neither. Yes, of course, of course. Paula and I have been friends since we were 14, and I, I, she is the best friend a person could ever, ever ask for. And she's just, uh, we are still very close, and and she's something in my life that's very precious, and I'm so grateful for her, and for her three children, and for, you know, everything that we have been through 
together. That friendship that people saw when they turned on the magic garden every day and sort of joined this circle of friendship that they felt a part of. And if you saw the letters that we get every day, uh, still from all of those children who couldn't write and there was no internet <laughs> back when they were three and four and five and eight and listening and watching us. Uh, now they're between 30 and 45 and they write to us and tell us what we meant to them and how happy they are to find our DVD collection so they can share it with their children who they feared might be too jaded to, uh, to love it the way they did because children today have so much media to choose from and boy those people are thrilled to find that their children do love it I mean it's simple classic stuff but the friendship that they feel and the chemistry that they feel is absolutely real because by the time we got to the Magic Garden we had been friends for God almost 20 years Wow so so was it the thing that you went to the TV station as a as a team and sort of approached someone for a show or how did that how did the show happen it was an insane time in my life because when we were shooting it, I was playing Sandy in Greece eight shows a week and shooting the Magic Garden on my one day off. But the, the, the station was looking for a way to satisfy the new um, children's television regulations. Oh. They, were, they were required... Uh, as part of their license to supply a certain number of hours of educational television to their audience. And the Children's Television Act had everybody um, scrambling for programming. They had a whole lot of cartoons in their vault, and they wanted to find someone to be a kind of host for a cartoon show. So they were looking for somebody who had experience with children and a lot of children and a lot of television experience, not necessarily children's films. I have half a master's in early childhood education. I didn't imagine that I was going to bounce out of school and suddenly become the toast of Broadway. (laughs) And I knew I'd have to, I'd have to learn, I'd have to support myself and my career. I, I got enough credits to pass a test and obtain license teach in the New York City school system. Paula now has the equivalent of a PhD in early childhood education. And she had done some folk singing. That was, she was wonderful at it. She played the guitar. She had a wonderful voice. But the two of us ended up teaching together in, this, in a big kindergarten at PS7 in Brooklyn, which is in the public school system in New York. Uh-huh. It was a double enrollment kindergarten with 50 children in the room at once. And if you don't think that was wild, <laughs> and a lot of them didn't speak English, oh, they had goodness. never had any previous schooling, so it was pretty challenging. And we we were teaching together, and we reached them and began their education with music and storytelling and things that they hadn't really experienced before. So that was ten years before the Magic Garden happened. When I went in to talk to WPIX about potentially hosting this show for them and they told me what they wanted to do I thought my brain started you know, going and I thought we, we could do something better than this I asked them if they might be interested in a team you know, I thought well you know, maybe they'd be open to discussing some other idea and I told them about Paula and I said we had this teaching experience together 
We have sung for the New York Shakespeare Festival together, which is another incredible story that I'm sure you don't have time for. Oh, I wish I did. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, well, we could talk again sometime if you like. Um, but anyway, they, I said, I'd, I'd really like for you to meet her and think about the possibility of our doing a show together that might expand you know, beyond the cartoon idea that you have. Not that your cartoons aren't charming, but, you know, maybe there's, we could do a little something more. They said, like, what? Come in and show us. Hmm. So we did. And I have to thank Paula for throwing that audition material together because I was in the middle of eight shows a week. Uh, I had no time to do it. And she, um, she did, and we went in, got on camera, did our thing, showed them, you know, a bit of the kind of thing we thought we, we could do. They got very excited about it. Uh, apparently interviewed a few more people, decided no one had our chemistry and they didn't really need to look further. And that's where the Magic Garden was born. Paula used to come to the theater where I was doing Grease on matinee days between shows with her baby at the time. Oh, wow. Her first one. She had two more after that. And she would bring me a sandwich or something, you know, so that I could eat something between shows. And we would go down depths of the theater and work on the show. The show um, was put together in an outline form by Virginia Martin, who was a station writer for WPIX, mm-hmm. and Alton Alexander, who was hired as, an, as a writer. But it was never totally scripted. All of the dialogue came from us, and we gave them lists of stories that we felt we could dramatize, bring to life, and songs that we knew we could do simple arrangements of with just two voices and a guitar live. Our voices had a great blend. That Hmm. was just sheer luck, which we had discovered back in the kindergarten. So we would, you know, she would come and we'd figure out which story are we doing and and who's going to play what and what props do we need and, and kind of, you know, work our way through it and work our way through simple arrangements for the songs we would be doing that week, uh, and then we would sometimes participate, in fact often, participate in, in discussions of the scripts with the writers at the station and say, we like this idea, we're not sure about that one, how about this? But when we would do a show, it was one page. Whoa. And we had the wonderful Carrie and TV doing Sherlock and Flapper at the same time. And only once that I remember did he foul up and and uh, reverse their vo- their voices. <laughs> he always remembered who was on what hand. He was so funny and dear and really a brilliant puppeteer. Well, I used He's to watch. I used to watch the Patchwork Family and and yes, that was Rags and, and those characters. Yeah. Yes. Yes, and these these were not sophisticated puppets with eyelids that moved and stuff. You know, they were. They were very simple. In fact, he made Sherlock out of a bathroom rug. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. He made him for the audition because they wanted him to come in and audition, and, and he didn't have a puppet. So I think he might have had rags, but he didn't feel like that was a, appropriate since this was something else. Right. So he made Sherlock out of a pink um, rug and half a rubber ball and pipe cleaners for his whiskers and we thought okay now they loved him now they'll make one that's you know a little <laughs> a little less thrown together that's what Carrie hoped but no 
you know, the budget was small, and they liked him the way he was. <laughs> and we were forever, you may have noticed, patting him on the cheek. Yeah. It was usually because we were sticking his whiskers back on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. How long was the Magic Garden on TV? How many shows did you end up doing? We didn't make a whole lot of them. We made 52 of them. And we made an hour-long Christmas special, which Paula and I wrote and produced. And they ra it ran for 12 and a half years. Yeah. Um, so wait, wait, cycles, those... You know, in 13-week cycles, the way shows often did at that time, so each show was shown four times a year. But there were a lot of them, and a lot of little children who watched it for a period of time. And then they would move on to mm. something else. So it it worked doing it that way. And actually, uh, a lot of them watched until they were quite a bit older, which we didn't know, of course, until we started getting letters now. And some of them were girls who, who had crushes when they were 12, and they were still not really talking about watching it, but they were watching <laughs> it. Um, children started watching about the time they were two and or three, and and continued to watch it into their early school days, especially girls watched it longer. You know, boys right. would get into superheroes and, and stuff, but girls would be eight or nine and still watching it. And then we get letters from people who are now grandparents who were the parents of those children. And according to the demographics, at the time there were there were was a really unusually large number of adults who were watching with their kids. Well, that, yeah, I mean, I have to say, just this morning, uh, my wife and I were flipping channels and we came across uh, a children's show, I'm, and I'm not going to say anything disparaging about it, I mean, it is, is the culture now, the, the so-called Doodle Bops, just came across it on one of those, those um, children's channels. And uh -huh. it's this perfectly fine, G-rated show for kids with a lot of music and a lot of color, but it, it moves so unbelievably fast. I mean, there, it's like cross-cutting and, and every no shot lasts for more than like two seconds. And then it's, it's all the music coming at you and stuff, and it's like, wow, if I were watching that 25 years ago, any child, our, our brains would have exploded because it, it's just so much going wham at us. And it's nice yeah. to remember back when they would do a, ch a show, especially a children's show, and it was like, okay, camera, two shot, two girls singing for a minute or two or three, telling a story. It's okay. If you need to cut to the puppet, you do. There, there was a gentleness that is gone, you know? Exactly. Exactly. There's, there's a certain frantic quality that has entered children's television that we can't say we're real happy about. And actually, there are many educators who recognize this for quite a long while. They, they changed the format of Sesame Street to a certain degree because it was moving very quickly, and educators were complaining and saying kids are starting school expecting a teacher to be on a new topic every three minutes. It's, you know, we can't, we can't um, get them to focus, to concentrate yeah. on anything for a stretch of time. The Magic Garden took place in real time, and it was just, it was like a visit every day. There was enough going on so that it wasn't sleepy to the point where adults couldn't bear it, um, apparently. It was fun, and, you know, spontaneous things happened, which were fun. The music was absolutely live. The set was small, and we just moved from one area to another, and we had, you know, certain features every day. 
that children looked forward to seeing, but there was something about the reality of it and the classic quality of it that makes it still interesting for children today, and we've had some educators look at it in recent times to tell us what they think about it, and they say they think that it's actually totally viable oh, yeah. and valuable still. There are a few things that are dated. Um, you know, the, some of the, uh, the people who are spoken about in various professions tend to be male, you know, that kind of thing. But all in all, when little children watch this show today, they can't get enough of it. We have the, you know, we have the DVD collection, which, if you don't mind, I will say is available Please. on the shop page at carolandpaula.com. Um, Carol, A-N-D? And Paul. A-N-D. You have to spell And Carol has an E. Oh, C A right, your name, C-A-R-O-L-E. A-N-D, Paula. A-N-D, P-A-U-L-A. Dot com. com. Right. So that's for the and DVD. And we have also, a shop page, and you can, and we chose 10 of our favorite uh, programs, and they are uh, in this DVD collection along with a nice little booklet that has pictures and stuff. And there's a, a CD sampler in there with uh, material from all three of our CDs as well. And so people buy this. They say, well, I bought it for myself, but I thought maybe my kids might like it. I had hopes, but I was thinking, well, maybe, you know, what I used to like, it's like, oh, mom, you know. <laughs> but they do like it. Right. The children do like it, and they can't get enough of it. We started writing a show, a new show, that was an arts education show called Friends Forever. Hmm. Uh, and we based it on a very solid um, arts education curriculum. And we were ourselves again, only years later, and we just focused on music and drama and mm-hmm. art. And we had puppet characters who were very much like Sherlock. In fact, we, we kind of wrote it in a way that they were they were Sherlock's relatives. Okay. And it may sound like we never had another good idea, so we just did it all over again. But not really. I mean, we expanded what we were able to do in the Magic Garden enormously and there was some serious interest in it but like many things you know it's showbiz and stuff happens when we we thought we almost had sold it to sony family and the two people who we went out to meet with were two young women who were producers there and wanted to do a new children's show and contacted us and said would you two by any chance be interested in getting back into children's television because they had both watched the show when they were kids and we said, not only that, but we have a show. We have drawings, we have scripts, we have you know, curriculum. We Come and show us. So we did. And they were just exploding with excitement when we were done, clutching this prototype that we had brought them and saying, oh, this is the best thing anyone has sent us. We are really interested. We'll get back to you. And then we get back home. And a few weeks later, their legal department called. Who do we talk to about a deal? And we thought... Is this, you know. is this, ah, well, you know, we were just yeah. jumping up and down. But one of them uh, got moved up into adult television. The other one got married. A new boss came in to that department. It slid to the bottom of the pile. And that wasn't the only place we had brought it. What it showed us was that it was good. Right. Um, or we would not have been met with that level of interest. You know, it's it's an exhausting full-time 
difficult process to try and make something like this happen. And we just, and, and it just hasn't. So are you still sort of trying? This is a fairly recent experience then. About, well, um, not real recent. Oh, okay. I mean, we started working on this 10 years ago. Mm. And off and on, we've been busy with it. And, you know, we have a very... We have busy lives. We're older now. Uh, I have a website of my own now, caroldemas.com, on which you can see all the insanity that I'm up to <laughs> because I've reached a point in my life where I feel like it's use it or lose it time. If I don't keep singing, right. then I won't. And, and actually, and, and I, I hate to, to, to rush, but we, we kind of have, unfortunately, I have to wrap this up. We're definitely invited for a part two because we didn't even go anywhere near half the things I wanted to, to talk about yet. But I, I want to make sure that you're able to push, like, your current appearances, your website, and you're, you're doing cabaret at, like, the Lori Beachman. So where can people see you in New York, um, like, in the very near future? Well, certainly, of course, Monday and Tuesday at the Gypsy of the Year, um, at the New Amsterdam Theater, the Gypsy of the Year events, which are big, amazing shows with all the great singers and dancers on Broadway doing various numbers, and starting with most of the original cast of Grease doing a big number in tribute to the iconic show that Grease has become over the years and because we were young when we started you know we were mostly in our 60s I'm a little older than that um, and we are you know still kicking right and most of us thank God still living and well so we are able to do this which is very exciting then on Wednesday night I will be at the Players Club in New York which is a, a prestigious and wonderful place and organization as the featured vocalist with Sean Harkness, an outstanding guitarist who's doing a show of his own, and asked me if I would join him, along with Ian Herman, who is my musical director and will be playing something of his own. And then on Saturday the 10th, mm -hmm. I will be at the Irvington Town Hall Theater, which is a lovely old theater in Westchester County, patterned after the theater where Booth shot Lincoln. <laughs> and oh, lovely, okay. <laughs> and, but it's, it's actually a, a wonderful theater, and I'll be there with Rob Evan, who's, oh. an, who's a big Broadway star. Um, From Jekyll and, and Hyde, I um, think. Yeah, yeah. Pardon? What, wasn't he in Jekyll and Hyde? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And Rita Harvey, uh, who, has, who has had a great, a great career, and her husband, Neil Berg, who has a troupe of Broadway people, um, and he goes about the country. He's probably been in Colorado with Neil Berg's 100, 100 Years of Broadway. Broadway. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then uh, on is it Thursday, the 15th of December, I'll be at the White Plains Performing Arts Center with a, a program of holiday songs of the season directed by Phil Jeffrey Bond. And there will be we will be mostly Broadway and cabaret people. It would be. I would like to say hello mm -hmm. if I could before yeah. I leave you <laughs> to my relatives in Colorado, to my uncle, Dr. Tom Steinberg in Vail, and to. Chris I knew Steinberg, you were Jew. I, I I had this feeling when you said thank God before, and then you said holiday show rather than Christmas show. I was like, you're Jewish, aren't you? Are you Jewish? No. You're not. Oh. Oh no. You're just being no, politically I'm not. correct. Oh wow. Okay. Paula is. I am not. Oh. Oh well, <laughs> my mistake. <laughs> you're welcome in the neighborhood. My anyway. husband is. 
Oh, well, there you no, so you're, oh, okay. You're Jewish by association. So, and I grew up in Brooklyn, which makes go. you about as Jewish as you can get without actually being Jewish. <laughs> well. Especially at the time that I grew up there. Well. Um, so, so you'll and, be, I, and I adore yeah. my husband's family, and they, and they have, they live in Israel, and they have adopted me quite fully, so I'm grateful for that. Awesome. I have my cousin Eric and his wife Kathy Steinberg in Steamboat Springs. And Dr. Chris Steinberg, my cousin in Alamosa. <laughs> and you know, I recently did uh, a, a show of my own. I called it Summer Nights at the Lori Beachman Theater last year and this past year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the people who sang with me was Josh Franklin. He and I, he sang Danny with me, and we did the Summer Nights number. It was such great fun. He was the last Danny on Broadway in the last revival. He played it toward the end. And Josh is from Colorado. I think he's from the Denver area. Oh. I know he's gone out there to sing. And we talked about it. I said, God, I would love nothing better than to bring my show to Colorado and do it. Colorado? Because I adore Colorado. My husband and I were there two years ago, gone to see my my uncle. And he was my my husband was in Denver at a trade show, and, and we took off from there. He had never gone through Rocky Mountain National Park. Oh, wow. Said, you have to see this. My father brought us all out there when we were kids. You know, we, we went on motor trips. My sister and two brothers and my parents, they would put us in the car and just drive us to see this country. My father, who had been in World War II and seen a lot of Europe, and he was in the OSS, he saw a lot of Europe and Asia. He said people don't remember how beautiful this country is. Mm they think about wanting to travel afar and he said I want you to see the Rockies and I want you to see Colorado and Wyoming and the beautiful places out there so it has been a very special place to me it was so exciting for me to well, my come, husband yeah. see the, see the oh. park and the first time I ever traveled through it coming from west to east instead of east to west yeah. when you're on the outside of the road <laughs> looking over. <laughs> <laughs> Carol, Carol, I hate to do this, but I actually have my, my, my next guest calling in, and we've, we've run a bit over time. So it, it's been fabulous, and it's wonderful that there's so many ways to come and see Carol Demas. Uh, she, she's in Gypsy of the Year. You'll be doing your show in Irvington and all around. And just go to her website, caroldemas.com, C-A-R-O-L-E-D-E-M-A-S.com. Carol, uh, consider this an invitation to come on back very, very soon to the neighborhood to tell us part two of, of your life and work. It's been an absolute magical experience having you in the neighborhood. Thank you so much. I enjoyed talking to you so much. And as you see, I'm a talker. <laughs> Press the button and I go. <laughs> well, that, hey, that's what we need on the radio, uh, but uh, not right this moment. So, No dead you. air. Have a good day. You too. Enjoy your next guest, and we'll talk again. You betcha. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right, you guys. Hey. You want to know what happened? Yeah, come on! Well, I met a boy this summer. It was all very romantic. Oh, yeah! Summer loving had me a blast. Summer loving happened so fast. Met a girl crazy for me. Summer day drifting away to all the summer nights. Well, 
She got a cram. Oh, he ran by me, got my sedan. Saved her life, she nearly drowned. He showed up, splashing around. Summer sun, something begun. The arcade. Absolutely, so great to uh, to have Carol Demas tell us a bit more in uh, in the neighborhood here. Carol Demas, of course, in Greece, which we barely even got to talk about, and uh, also on well off Broadway in the Fantastics for a couple of years. And as she told us, the Magic Garden definitely got to do part two with Carol Demas. But I did not want to shortchange our next guest in the neighborhood today on Dave's Gone By. Really, really excited to have this writer, this author of all different genres and all different mediums, media, sorry, uh, here in the neighborhood. He's written plays, including Scuba Duba and Steam Bath, a very celebrated Steam Bath. And then he also has written novels like Stern and About Harry Towns and the uh, somewhat controversially titled book The Dick, which is, yes, it's about a detective. Don't, don't you know, get your minds out of there. And also, he had a hand in the screenplays for such movies as The Lonely Guy, Stir Crazy, and Splash. All of this in the very long and fruitful career of our guest in the neighborhood, Bruce J. Friedman. First of all, Bruce, can you hear me? Uh, yeah, it's a little fuzzy, but uh, uh, I can kind of hear you. All right, well... Um, I'll, I guess that's probably just my, my terrible diction. I will, I will try to speak less fuzzily, because there's nothing I can do about the board or the actual quality otherwise. So I'll just enunciate better. How are you, Bruce J. Friedman? Uh, decent. Uh, highly decent. Highly decent. That's, that's, I, I heard you were doing only moderately decent a while ago, so it's better to hear that you're doing. Are you, are you physically healthy? Are you, are you good there? Uh, again, I'm having trouble. When you when we first spoke and I called you, I could hear you very clearly, but now so, something's going on. Um, well, you're, you're, I'm coming through the microphone through the board rather than talking to you on you know a regular telephone receiver. So that right. Well, be, we'll do the best we can, I guess. 
So anyway, my, my question was, and I guess I'm also talking very quickly, but I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little slower as well, which may help. How are you physically? Uh, I had a little uh, setback uh, uh, with some uh, uh, knee replacement uh, surgery that went uh, slightly awry, uh, but, um, but I'm hanging in. I'm, I'm, doing, uh, uh, I'm doing well. May I ask how old you are? Eighty-one. Didn't Mazel even hesitate, you know. Mazel tov, mazel tov. Eighty-one, yeah, you're entitled to a new knee. You really are. You, know, you should use right. it in good health. But here's the reason, one of the main reasons, aside from just wanting to talk to this man, the reason that we're specifically talking to Bruce J. Friedman now is that you have finally sent out your memoirs, your, your new book called Lucky Bruce, it's on Biblioasis books, and it's the story of your work and your life. And uh, I guess the first question always is, why now? Why the summing up at this particular point? Uh, why did I choose to write a memoir? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, and, as a, and why didn't you write it 10 years ago or maybe 10 years from now? Why now? Oh, well, I do some speaking, uh, not every 10 minutes, but... Uh, some teaching and some speaking, and now and then someone would tap me on the shoulder and say, my, you've had an interesting life. Uh, why don't you write about it? Uh, I hadn't thought of it as particularly uh, fascinating, but others did. And I think mostly it was the, uh, what appealed to them was the, um, the wide compass, in other words, having some achievement in the novel and also uh, in film and on the stage, um, which is a, a little bit unusual in our uh, literary uh, culture. Uh, there aren't too many. Uh, Woody Allen doesn't write novels, and um, Philip Roth doesn't write screenplays, yeah. and people stick to their last, you know, what they're good at. And for some reason, I've been curious about uh, each of these forms, and I never found it uh, terribly intimidating uh, to, um, you know, to cross over, because to me it was always uh, storytelling in another in another form. And you, do you, do you um, elevate one above the other, or are they all equally valid to you? I mean, do you feel like, oh, I've just written another novel, as opposed to, oh, I, I tossed off a play, or? Is each one its own unique gem of a thing? Well, no. It it really is a matter of what the uh, what I want to write about, mm -hmm. and uh, some some something feels like a short story. That's where I'm most comfortable. Or uh, more ambitiously, it might feel like uh, a novel. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, screenplays came my way because I'd get a call uh, every now and then from a uh, you know, from someone in Hollywood who, with a suggestion, uh, and I'd uh, follow through on that and, um, and had some success with that. Well, I, I think the, the interesting thing is that um, you did have some films and screenplays that I guess you feel close to and, and that were basically yours. I assume The Lonely Guy was kind of like that and maybe stir-crazy, whereas you're, you're, especially in the memoir, you say, your experience on Splash was not so happy. 
Yeah. Uh, well, the result was, I suppose, a happy one uh, sure. uh, commercially. Um, but um, now it got, you know, there were other fingerprints on it, and I would have been happier um, if there weren't, <laughs> actually. <laughs> well, uh, can I ask, what did Babalu Mandel change about your script for Splash? I mean, you can't argue with success. Uh, it's a delightful film. It made millions of dollars, probably did all right for your bank account. But how would the movie have been different if it had been Bruce J. Friedman's Splash? Well, I'd uh, set out to write a more pure uh, romance. And um, I don't, maybe I shouldn't use the word vulgarized, but I mean, it got more about a guy, I don't know what you're allowed to say on the radio. It's college radio, we're okay. Well, I mean, oh, I mean, about a guy uh, trying to get laid, you oh, know, yeah, and uh, that. yeah. that's not what I set out uh, to do. So that was one. Uh, change. Also, I had my original character in the fish business, in the smoked fish business. I did a lot of research on smoked fish. It seemed to me if he was going to fall in love with a mermaid, that was a good ocu occupation. So that got changed uh, into uh, the fruit and vegetable business. Um, because, quite frankly, you know, Hollywood has this um, uh, nervousness about something that might sound a little Jewish. No, really? <laughs> uh, yeah, it still continues, uh, I believe. It's absurd. But smoked fish somehow connoted, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it seemed to be a Jewish occupation. And, and they changed the name, too, didn't they? It was going to be um, the, the lead character, the Tom Hanks character, had a more Jewy name when you wrote it, right? Am I uh, tell me again. I mean, when when you wrote the script, didn't the Tom Hanks character have a more yeah, had Jewy... a different uh, name? Yeah. Uh, I think Adam became Alan, or you know, it's been a while now. Oh, sure. uh, but that was another, uh, uh, you know, basically cosmetic uh, change. Uh, but the sense of it, I guess, was on the screen, and they did some very good things. Okay, so so you're not unhappy about the whole experience ultimately. I mean, it probably hurt a bit. At first. I had uh, mixed feelings. For example, what attracted me initially was uh, I'd written a book called The Lonely Guy, and someone that's how it all began. Someone from United Artists said, what if one of your lonely guys fell in love with a mermaid? Hmm. And that's what I was, uh, was given. Uh, it interested me because I was thinking <clears throat> about Poseidon and Legends of the Deep. Um, and I like... Even in a screenplay, I like to kind of learn something or do a little research. Or it's, I like every project to be diff completely different. Um, I never was the kind of fella uh, to come up with a single detective and do 15 different variations of it. I would have gotten bored. Mm. So that's a determining factor with me, is it completely different. Uh, but Poseidon and Legends of the Deep and the Poseidon Kingdom never got shown on the screen, uh, although it was in my script. And that was pre-digital. I think uh, that might have been one reason it was uh, bypassed. Or maybe they just didn't feel it was necessary. Yeah. Well, and, and we should say also that The Lonely Guy ended up becoming a movie on its own. It was a Steve Martin film that um, 
you know. So, so how did you get to sort of have more control over that one? Well, control is an odd word when you couple it with screen, screenwriting. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you. Uh, I once was complaining to um, Richard Pryor about some mistreatment uh, by the studios on a film I was working, and he listened patiently. And at the end, he said, "Did you get paid?" <laughs> <laughs> and and finally. Uh, the whole idea. If you want control, you do what some of these people do now in the lower budget area. You, um, <clears throat> you know, you learn the camera and you make the movie and you control it. You know, you do uh, what Woody Allen does. I, I was never really that interested in making movies. Um, I tried it. Uh, the whole Hollywood experience was more, uh, was fun. Um, the only thing I disliked about it was yeah. the actual work. When I was when I was asked to come off the tennis court and to write a few pages, I was always a little offended. Actually, um, so Hollywood to me represented uh, fun. I never took it seriously. Huh. I like the movies now a lot more now that I'm not working on. Them. No, well, okay, you can step away and then. And look back at them. I, and, and I didn't, unfortunately, have a chance to read the whole book. I was—I only had time to, to skim it because I just got it. But um, when you wrote that that novel, Stern, you thought it was going to be a disaster. Am I am I misquoting uh, that? Uh, which film are we talking about? No, no, no. I'm talking about your book, your 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 novel, Stern. Oh yes, uh, I did. It was a first novel, and I was really frightened and thinking seriously about uh, leaving the country Good uh, Lord. because it was so you know close to the bone and uh, um, it was uh, on a touchy subject and uh, I didn't know how it was going to be received but uh, I was wrong and it had a, a glowing Reception, especially from the uh, you know from the more serious critics, which is um, you know which is I, which is what I wanted. Well, sure. So I got away with that. What well, was that before or after Portnoy? Was it was uh, the before. Timeline. It was before, but so it was cause... a few. Yeah, it was yeah. A, I mean, I was aware of Philip Roth and his absolutely wonderful stories in the New Yorker. But um, <clears throat> Stern came first, if uh, and very often comparisons are made. But uh, at least chronologically, uh, uh, I was there, wherever whatever there means uh, first. And and so that book um, really kind of launched, I think, your, your literary career. And have there been other times, like you mentioned, there was another book that you wrote that just did not get the. Um, uh, can you repeat that? that you... I'm uh, having increasing difficulty oh. hearing you. And, you know, I, I just have to get closer to the microphone. I think that will help also. But there's a book called About Harry Towns. Yeah. I think you mentioned in another interview. You, you really like a lot, but that one just didn't seem to click with the critics. I mean, how do you get through that? Well, I, I got the Harry Towns part, but I didn't really get the question. Oh, I, I just meant uh, unlike Stern, which was pretty much universally acclaimed and, and you know you have uh, other books that maybe did not get so well received 
how do you put your heart and soul into these other books, send your babies out there, and then, you know, you deal with the backlash if there is one? Uh, well, I'll try to piece together sure, what I'm you're just, asking yeah. me. I, I don't know what's going on with the sound. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah, so you get uh, surprised, you know, as to what's going to work, and uh, at, le at least... In, I never think very much about the audience. Um, very selfish of me, uh, but if the material interests me, that's what—that's where I go. Um, and this whole, you know, there are two kinds of writing. There are people who who wonder what, uh, you know, how a book will be received, how many people are going to read it, whatever, and uh, that it becomes sort of like the shoe business. Um, you know what shoes are people going to prefer next year and um, I simply followed the material uh, whatever really interests me right up to today um, and that's where I go and it's only secondary I mean it's fun when the uh, when the readership or the audience uh, goes along and has the same set of concerns uh, that I do, uh, and, and one of the one of the things I, I heard you mention in another interview also is this idea of going back and um, you know revising and rewriting some stuff. Like you were going to do a you did a sequel to Stern, and then you were thinking of kind of looking back at that. Are, are you still planning some revisions and things as well as new books and, and things to write? Uh, again, I'm having that same difficulty here. Uh, things to write. Well, well, in other words, the stuff that you're working on now, which I, I thought you mentioned included uh, not only new things, but maybe going back and revising and looking at other pieces like Stir and Kings. Uh, uh, well, uh, what am I doing right now? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm still enjoying the glow, frankly, of uh, this nice uh, experience I had with the uh, memoir and the uh, reviews that I got. I haven't had that kind of uh, reception from the, you know, from the Times, which is the one you want, particularly the Daily Times, sort of a love letter. So I'm coming down a little bit from that, but um, uh, whenever I have a so-called interim period I write short stories so that's what I'm doing and I have enough for what would turn out to be a, a sixth uh, uh, collection of uh, stories that have been published but haven't been collected yet oh wow uh, and I have um, and there are there's actually a sequel I did to sort of a sequel I did to Stern where I pick him up uh, 30 years later um, and that is a work in progress uh, something I'll you know the fates permitting which I'll uh, go back to cool cool let's let's also remind people that um, your memoir your current memoir is called Lucky Bruce it's on Biblioasis books and let's get to some of the cool stories that uh, everybody would want to hear about and read about. I guess um, the most, the one that was really the tempest in the teapot is your famous 
fist fight, not really, with Norman Mailer. Would you, would you mind explaining how, how you ended up fighting, sort of, with Norman Mailer? Well, from the very first, when I met uh, Norman, I sensed, I don't know if it was my ego, that he was sort of glaring at me. And uh, someone explained that I reminded him of uh, someone who used to beat him mercilessly at tennis at Harvard. Uh, and I looked like that guy, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. no, uh, as far as the fight... Uh, that was an embarrassment. No way I could avoid it. Uh, but Norman, uh, I had a play that was a it was a pretty big hit at the time. It's called Scuba Duba, and Norman had a play called Deer Park, which was really struggling uh, to just stay afloat. And he had always dreamed of having a big play. Uh, he envied uh, Arthur Miller. Uh, and dreamed of having that big play on Broadway with uh, Marilyn Monroe thrown into the mix. Um, so um, it was a, it was a kind of a, the the evening had a kind of undercurrent of violence at a party I was invited to, and I just started to leave. There's only one way out, uh, and there, there he was sort of blocking it. And I wasn't innocent entirely because I remember rumpling his hair a little, and Norman, you know, it's really time for us to go. And that got him all upset. And next thing uh, I know, his wife of the time, Beverly, was shouting, kill the bastard, <laughs> Norman. And we both dutifully went outside in the street and had what passed for a uh, for a fight but it was you know writers aren't very good at fighting although they're fascinated by it i doubt that hemingway was much good for all of his uh, uh, bluster uh-huh. um but i i think norman was even worse at it than i was so um uh, but but during this semi fight i remember him uh, calling out uh, uh, Scuba Duba, the name of my play, Scuba Duba sucks. Uh, so apparently it was really bothering him. Uh, and a, a mutual friend told me he took Norman to see my play, and at the end of it, Norman pounded on the armrest and said, I know what it is. Friedman's a wit. I mean, as if I'd pulled some underhanded <laughs> trick, you know. Uh, yeah. Norm, Norman, as so many writers are, worried, uh, concerned that they're not uh, that they're not funny. I don't know why I should bother them. Uh, Mario Puzo, at the height of his fame, and he was a close friend. Uh, every once in a while, he'd look off in the distance. He was the highest-paid writer in history. Uh, <clears throat> look off in the distance and say, uh, "How come they never call me for comedy?" So it's sort of a, uh, a pressure point with uh, writers. They're worried that they're not uh, funny enough. And I think uh, Norman uh, uh, yeah, he, he was not really way, known for quite, I thought he was quite witty in his way. I don't know if I've answered your question. Well, no, no, no. That, that, that's, that's, that is the story. I mean, you go now I can more, hardly hear you at all. Uh, you, you go into more detail in the book, 
um, about that story and a bunch of other stories. But um, how did you and Mario Puzo become best buddies? Oh, well, in night, uh, it, through the late 50s, early 60s, I was editor of a group of men's adventure magazines uh, called Male Men uh, True Action and Man's World, four of them. And I had an opening on the staff. Two people came up. One was Arthur Kretschmer, who went on to become uh, editor of Playboy for many decades. And the other was Mario. And what I really needed was a writer, um, someone who could uh, fill up that, help fill up that quota. I had to buy like 70 stories a month. So as bright as Arthur was, uh, Mario was... Uh, uh, was was a writer, I could tell. This is pre-Godfather. And the story that always goes along with that, and it's irresistible to me, is in 1963, he approached me and said, I was his editor uh, at the magazines, and said he was think he was working on a novel and he'd like to try out the title on me. I'm thinking of calling it The Godfather. What do you think? Yeah. And I said, well, not much, uh, frankly. Mario, it sounds a little domestic to me. Uh, I would, uh, I would take another shot at it. And, uh, <laughs> so he gave me a look of steel—a look that you really wouldn't. He's a short, stout man, but you would not want to see that look uh, again. And the odd thing about it is, I probably was right. For it would have been the wrong title on any other uh, any other book but the godfather <laughs> uh, it was a little domestic but until you found out what the godfather meant but uh, f- but we became uh, friends uh, right right to the end uh, i guess he died well more than a decade ago and uh, i rarely a day passes that i don't uh, uh, think of him oh wow uh, and one of his uh, uh, observations or one of his uh, remarks. Uh, absolutely wonderful man. Hmm. And and one of the things I'm um, also curious curious about. By the way, can you hear me a little better now? By any chance? A little better. Oh, good. Okay. Um, is a, a story about you being part of this group of writers, famous, pretty famous, and and successful writers, and you wouldn't really want to let another writer in because he was too good. Was that um, is that a true story there? Oh sure, uh, I do remember that. We we had a lunch uh, out in Southampton, Long Island. It was uh, Puzo when he was at the height of his fame, and Joseph Heller, and Heller's friend Speed Vogel, and Mel Brooks would join us when he was there. And every once in a while, we'd. Um, uh, think about somebody else who might want to join us uh, for lunch. And I proposed uh, Jim Salter, a uh, brilliant uh, guy, a terrific guy. And Mario sa- uh, vetoed him by saying, no, he's too good a writer. <laughs> and what so did he that, mean by that? Did it just mean you, you would feel inadequate there or that he would be brought down to a lower level by being with you guys? What did he mean? What did he mean by yeah. it? Well, uh, I think uh, Jim is quite brilliant, but he's sort of a, a special taste. 
uh, if you know his, uh, his I don't. I don't. Work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of like having a taste for some very, very fine wine, uh, which is, and the taste is lost on somebody like me, who's very happy with a, with a ten dollar bottle of wine. You know, um, I'm happy with two so buck chuck. It was, yeah. a, uh, it was somewhat in that area. Cool. Cool. We are, by the way, talking with Bruce J. Friedman, and um, wanted to ask a, a few other things. I did not realize also that uh, the movie, the Elaine May movie, The Heartbreak Kid, was based on a short story of yours. Is that true? Yes, it was first published uh, in uh, Esquire magazine under the title Change of Plan, and there was immediate film interest uh in it, which happens once in a blue moon, and uh, it ended up being uh, the Heartbreak Kid, uh, the first version, which was uh, written, the screenplay was written by Neil Simon, and Elaine May directed it, Mm -hmm. and uh, it was my favorite experience, and it was, you know, based on my short story. And in many ways, it was my favorite experience in Hollywood because I, I didn't have to do anything. <laughs> I just <laughs> bought some popcorn and went to see the movie, and I thought it was—I really liked it a lot. And I liked—I uh, watched the uh, sequel, uh, which I didn't care for as much. I thought the first uh, twenty minutes or so were kind of funny, and then it, in my view, it sort of went off a cliff. I, I, do you mean the sequel or the remake? Uh, the remake. Remake. Okay. Cool. Sequel's yeah. interesting because I do. I, I did have a sequel in mind. Oh. Uh, who knows? Uh, I might even uh, be, maybe we'll even make that. But I, I did have I did have a sequel in mind. I'm kind Picking of cu- up that character twenty years later. You know. I'm uh, I'm kind of curious. Did your experience in the Air Force inform your writing or your worldview in any way? Oh, I don't know about the world view. I'm not sure I have one now. <laughs> but um, uh, in a way, it uh, led to uh, my introduction to the literary world. I had one experience that <clears throat> really shook me up in the uh, uh, during a flight. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, I was terribly upset by it I, it was a near death and uh, didn't know quite what to do about it so I wrote a short story uh, the first one I tried and I sent it off to the New Yorker which if you can imagine such a thing had even more prominence at that time than it does now it's still a wonderful magazine and then I forgot about it and uh, got a, a call or a letter from uh, one of the fiction editor, Hollis Alpert, who said, this isn't quite right for us, but do you have anything else? Hmm. Well, I didn't have anything else. I was 23, so I sat down in my mother's kitchen and I wrote another story called Wonderful Golden Rule Days, totally unrelated to my Air Force experience, and they bought that. So there I was, a published writer at a very early age, and that one story led to another story, led to another one, and then the progression is uh, you then move on and uh, 
try a novel. And uh, the rest is uh, at least my own private uh, history. Well, at, at what point were you able to get out of the, the publishing of men's adventure magazines and rely solely well, uh, on, on was, writing? Uh, it was a, a big step for me because my income was good. I was 35 years old. But I was sending people around the country and even abroad places that I wanted to go to. Mm-hmm. So... Um, it took me about a year to make, because I had a family, I had a wife and three children, wow. and a very good income at the time. Uh, and I, it took me about a year to make up my mind that I just had enough uh, of that. Uh, and I wanted to just uh, try my wings as a, as a writer, you know, an everyday writer. And it, so finally I just uh, quit. Um, and it took me about 10 minutes to get used to it (laughs) a year to get ready to make that leap and 10 minutes to get used to it and I I never uh, really uh, never really looked back except for the 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 water cooler stuff you know the social aspect of it that you'd be around people during the day I still miss that a little bit but in a funny way the theater working in the theater takes care of that it's a you know, there's a lot of social interaction, and the girls are prettier. <laughs> if if they're really girls, yeah. No, that, that that's well. No, speaking of pretty girls, actually, that has to do with uh, it's a weird segue. But but the first time that I even noticed or heard of Bruce J. Friedman was when Steam Bath premiered on PBS TV. I mean, I was a kid. I was as well. I don't remember what year that was, but it was the early seventies. So, you know, I, I was barely a teenager at that point. And so, ooh, you know, I, I kind of liked artsy and cultural things, and I liked watching uh, Channel 13 a lot in New York. So I'm like, oh, let me watch this play, and it's interesting, and, and you know, I recognize Bill Bixby from My Little Martian. And then suddenly Valerie Perrine walks into the, uh, into the shower room, and I was like, okay, I'm not gay. <laughs> that, that, was like, that was like the moment. I was like, okay, I like that. I like those. And then, then I tried to pay attention to the rest of the play, but um, the idea... For steam bath, that you know of of a men's room attendant being. I mean, how did that come to you? At the time, um, I was spending some time uh, in a steam bath on Lexington Avenue uh, during my lunch period at uh, the magazines. I'd go over and work out and take a steam bath, and people. Um, well, they exposed themselves well, yeah, well. verbally uh, in a steam bath and have a way of talking to each other. And you get an interesting collection of characters. Add on that the there was a kind of Puerto Rican uh, influx at the time in Manhattan, a certain Puerto Rican style, verbal style. Plus, I'd had a bad experience at a, a Chinese uh, restaurant where I thought, you know, it was like an intensive care kind of situation. <laughs> wow. So scramble them all together, and uh, you have, uh, you know, a fellow who's just been ill or come from a Chinese restaurant and wanders into this steam bath and is told that uh, the towel attendant is, uh, is God. And uh, the most of the first act is taken up with proving his uh, uh, divinity. Uh, 
that's how all of that happened. Huh. And were you were you worried about that show too, or did you realize maybe with that one that it was controversial enough and funny enough that um, it, it would be audiences would receive it pretty well? It would be something of a cause celeb. Uh, I thought once it got on, I thought it would. It was after all, it was following Scuba Duba, which had been a real major hit at the time. Uh, everybody wanted to direct the play, hmm. uh, and we wound up with Anthony Perkins. Who not only directed it, but uh, at the last minute jumped in and played the leading role. Well, well you tell some wonderful uh, stories in your uh, memoir, Lucky Bruce, about the decision leading up to not only getting Anthony Perkins to direct, but him kind of saying no to a bunch of other actors, possibly because he had it in mind to be in it uh, from the very first. I mean, you're not sure, but uh, you kind of feel like, hmm, you know, he may have had that in the back of his mind. Well, uh, I was still more or less a, a rookie and naive in the way of the theater. and We had uh, at least three or four beyond competent but really terrific actors. Uh, well, one would include Dick Sean. He was mm. really too, too frightened to really play the lead. But we had some very good actors, and somehow... Uh, uh, Tony uh, found them, for one reason or another, insufficient. It never occurred to me that he had always wanted to play that part. So at the end, when um, I think it was Rip Torn didn't quite work out, uh, Tony very graciously agreed <laughs> to, to play the lead, and he played it impeccably, actually. It was... Um, uh, He's a very good actor, very, very smart guy, and I was very fond of him. And this was also like towards the very beginning of the career of the guy who played the uh, the janitor was um, Hector Elizondo, right? Yeah, uh, we had interviewed about oh forty or fifty uh, Hispanic uh, actors, and I began to feel that I'd written a very poor uh, part. And then uh, Elizondo uh, showed up. He had a bad um, bronchial infection. You could hardly hear him uh, speak above a whisper. Uh, Perkins got very impatient with him. And Elizondo left the uh, theater where we were auditioning. And I said, Tony, we've got to use this guy because I, I, Perkins was upset because he was mumbling. And I said, well, look. I listened to those mumbles. <laughs> they were great mumbles, and he's going to be just fine. So we hired him. Actually, you, you tell and he's gone yeah, on, to, of course, uh, have you know quite a nice career. No, he's a brilliant, Hollywood. brilliant actor. I'm, and although you do tell one one little awful story, I don't forgive me if I'm forgetting the name. Was it Dana Andrews? Who? Oh, you mean? Uh, well, uh, Dana Andrews. Um, came up uh, and auditioned for the lead and uh, gave to me the best reading of anything I'd written uh, ever. I was really overcome uh, with, by it. I, it was um, a, ma a magnificent reading. It made the work ten times better than it really was. So he came back to chat and uh, as far as I was concerned, he 
there's no question he uh, would get that part. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, oh, by the way, who's directing the play? So I said, Anthony Perkins. Sorry for laughing. Sure, sure, sure. He said, that faggot? <laughs> you expect me to be directed by that faggot? And he went storming out of the theater, and we never saw him again. What? I, did he? Was he homophobic, or did he have a specific hatred of Anthony uh, Perkins? Homophobic, I think, is putting it mildly. Well, no, well, yeah, no, but it could also be the thing of like he he hated Perkins specifically and just used that word in a uh, in a way to, to tar um, well, Perkins. Never, we'll never know. I mean, he may have had some. Uh, you know, it never occurred to me. He may have had some personal reason related to a Hollywood experience having nothing to do with the gay side. Right. But uh, but I just quoted him direct, directly. Wow. That, that's, a, that's a nasty little story right there. But but obviously, Steam Bath turned out very, very well. And, um, and so, um, have you written... When was the last time you wrote a play? Well... Uh, wrote a play. I wrote a play uh, recently that, <clears throat> that I'm still working on. But the last fully produced play I had, uh, which worked out very well, um, was called, it was about 12 years ago, roughly. It was called, Have You Spoken to Any Jews Lately? <laughs> it was performed at the American Jewish Theater Oh. And very well reviewed, although the run was limited, and it's had a couple of other productions. It's a tricky production, but <clears throat> what's it about? Uh, two two men, friends, uh, in some remote part of the country. It could have been the tip of Eastern Long Island, a place like that, who slowly realize over the course of the first act that they are the last two Jews left in hmm. the country and probably in the world. And that's the, uh, and then it's how it plays out and how they deal with it. Um, again, very well received, but uh, didn't have as much of a future as I I'd would have wanted. I, I always wonder about that. I mean, if you have like a success in, in, a, in a small theater. I mean, the American Jewish Theater doesn't even exist anymore. I think That's the, true. Upright Citizens Brigade took over their theater a few years ago after it went dark, and then the Jewish rep has gone up on 90s. I mean, you know, now Jewish theater is just inculcated into regular theater. But I do wonder why, you know, you have something and you figure, okay, here it's 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 poised, and and there's got to be some producer ready to take it to a bigger level to, uh, you know. A, major off-Broadway venue or a or big Broadway house. How come, I don't know, how do you, you deal when it just doesn't happen, you know? Well, uh, a lot, I mean, I don't know if it's worth uh, getting into, but there were two, it's, it was a very edgy, to put it mildly, play to begin with. Uh, there were two producers. One was crazy about it, and he said, we've been looking for an angry play and this is the one we want to do and <clears throat> the other producer was uh, sort of quiet and lukewarm so the angry guy <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the, the fellow who was all enthusiastic uh, um, died suddenly and we were left with um, uh, the guy who was unenthusiastic and mostly concerned 
about his subscription audience, which was mostly Holocaust survivors. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, I mean, they wanted to see Milk and Honey. Right. And were, would have been happy to see it over and over. And here I am, <laughs> you know, with this very dark uh, play. I thought it was, you know, it was funny, I hope, uh, but dark. And so he, even when the play opened and got a rave review in the Times, hmm. he still was upset uh, because he said his subscription people were throw, tearing up their tickets and throwing them in his face. So um, there was no, what you needed was a strong producer at the helm. Yeah, He was just happy when the play, uh, you know, uh, closed was it six or seven weeks um so there it is it was hmm. picked up done a few times but i didn't think very successfully and i guess this is uh, the lesson of all this is no matter what you just you turn to the next thing because you don't know how something is going to be received and you don't know you know even when it's well received you don't know if it'll jump to another level or just sit there like an egg and, and splat. So you just have to go back to the typewriter, or, or I assume you work on a computer now. You assume correctly. Okay. You never know. Sometimes I mean, I, you know, Arthur Miller wrote a longhand on a legal pad, I think, for, for all of his life. Even well, it took me a while. And also, you have to look at those stories carefully. Uh, I, there's one novelist I know who's very proud of uh, having nothing to do with the computer uh he writes on those big yellow legal pads mm -hmm. but when you look into it you find out that when he's finished working with the legal pads he hands them over to his wife <laughs> to put on the computer <laughs> and she she does it on her her ipad and she, she's running it for twitter and yeah uh, well i i who i interviewed once not on the radio but for uh and it was joan Who's not Joan Collins, the actress? Who's her sister, the writer? Um, but you know, she'll she'll just write a bit and dictate, and then it all goes off to her secretary to really polish it up, and then she goes through and makes the corrections. So, but um, okay. Oh, what what is her name? She writes um, tons of romance novels. Uh, sister of Joan Collins, um, bestseller, I, bestseller. Um, oh well, I can't quite help on this. Yeah, it's okay, yeah. You, I, I mean, you know, I know the name the, if I... I know the play you're talking about. The person, yeah. Anyway, um, I didn't I did not realize until also looking up your autobiography that um, you're the father of caricaturist Bruce... Uh, excuse me, Drew Friedman. I didn't realize that. So so um, he's had uh, quite a bit of success in his field as well. Oh, well, he's a phenomenon. I mean, I just don't know where that comes from. <laughs> okay. But, uh, he uh, he can keep uh, <clears throat> he can keep twenty people busy. I mean he's um, he's that good and that much in demand, and he's uh, extraordinary. Again, I don't know. I can't draw a picture of a of a highway sign. Um, his mother uh, had some ability, as I recall, but she didn't really uh, do very much with it. Hmm. But Drew, from time he was three years old and could pick up a crayon, uh, you could tell that he had, uh, you know, had ability. And uh, he just amazes me. And the other part, part of it, he also happens to be a, a very, very nice guy.
Well, good. I, I hope oh, you can I say that say about all your kids. I, I'm, I can't say enough about him. Yeah. Right. No, and I hope you're, you're, you have three children, which I imagine, you know, that affected your career early on because you were afraid to, uh, to leave the job that you had. But then, you know, was it, how was it being a dad and then also trying to be a full-time writer, entertainment, filmmaking person, having to go a lot of different places? Did it conflict or did you balance it? Well, um, early on, uh, <clears throat> there was some pressure on me. You know, I was in my 20s, and I had uh, uh, three boys, and I had barely been introduced to my wife. Uh, that's the way it was back there in the 50s. You know, people got married for, yeah, often for the uh, wrong reasons. So there I was with three young boys and a wife and a mortgage <clears throat> and I had to really scramble to uh, in fact I named my company uh, which I had for a while uh, Scrambler yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, we've always been very close uh, you know we had an early divorce and <clears throat> I've never been further away from them than you know a, a five minute, you know, five minute ride or a phone oh. call. Uh, we're a very, very tight family, and that would include uh, Molly, my daughter, who's now 27, uh, <clears throat> with obviously with the second uh, second wife. Well, actually, uh, uh, are we talking about Molly M from A Literary Light? Uh, Is... Molly K. Molly. Oh, oh, different Molly. Okay, because Mo uh, someone named Molly was the PR person for the book. No, no, whole oh, different. Oh, different. Molly. Okay, just checking. Cool. Um, well, cool. Well, I mean, and, and, and it's great, of course, that you've got the new family, and, and of course, the second marriage has lasted how long? Oh, it's uh, been uh, perfection. <laughs> mazel tov, mazel tov. Yeah. When, what, what year are you going on in, in marriage number two? Oh, easy, 30 years. Mazel I'm again? I'm not good at mm -hmm. keeping track of this uh, precisely, but it's been a good 30 years, and a very good 30 years. Well, it's been a very, very good time talking with Bruce J. Friedman, the author, the playwright, the novelist, the screenwriter, and, of course, the memoirist of Lucky Bruce, available from Oasis uh, Books, is it? Yeah, Biblioasis, excuse me, Books. Uh, Lucky Bruce. Last question for the Lucky Bruce that we are talking to, because you've had a pretty lucky career overall. And I guess the, the question now is, especially at your advancing age, when you're not working on all these things that you're trying to get out in, in you know, the, hopefully the last 10, 20 years that you've got. What are you doing for fun, for hobbies? Um, I don't have, I'm not much of a hobbyist. I mean, I get asked about retiring, and I wouldn't know what to do with myself, actually, other than write my next, uh, next story. I was, uh, you know, Pretty much, uh, I was involved in outdoor stuff up until uh, <clears throat> recently. I did a lot of uh, biking, played mm -hmm. a lot of tennis. Uh, but uh, now it's uh, uh, reading and uh, <clears throat> watching movies and scribbling every day, you know, uh, and my family. Is that the and thing? That's about. That's yeah. about. 
Yeah, I mean, stamp collecting doesn't interest me. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't interest anyone anymore? I don't know, you know, 10-year-olds. Can, can I ask, though, do, is that your routine? You have to write, you set aside a block of time every morning? Is that your ritual? Well, it's not necessarily every morning, but at some point in the day, <clears throat> I pick it up. And even if it's just a matter of worrying about it, um, I'm always in touch with it. I always have a, yeah, I always have a, a have to have a, a project or I'm not really, a project meaning a story I'm writing mm -hmm. or a play I'm working on or I'm really not fit to live with. Um, <laughs> I sort of know that feeling somehow. I don't know why. Um, well, I hope that you are working on many projects, be, these, be they Stern Kills or another play or another novel or whatever you turn your attentions to. I, I do want to thank you so much for, uh, for being with us in the neighborhood. It's, it's just been a fabulous time chatting with you. Well, I enjoyed it, and thank you. Thank you so much, Bruce J. Friedman. Bye-bye now. Bye now. Hello, Bruce. Hi, Bruce. Big crook, Bruce. Where's Bruce? He's not here, Bruce. Blimey, he's hot in here, Bruce. Hot enough to boil a monkey's bum. That's a strange expression, Bruce. Well, Bruce, I heard the Prime Minister use it. Sod enough to boil a monkey's bum in here, Your Majesty, he said, and she smiled quietly to herself. She's a good sheila, Bruce, and not a tall strucker. Yeah, here's the boss fella now. How are you, Bruce? G'day, Bruce. Hello, Bruce. Bruce. Hello, Bruce. Hi, Bruce. G'day, Bruce. Gentlemen, I'd like to introduce a chap from Pommyland who's joining us this year here in the philosophy department of the University of Wollamalan. Good day. Hello. I'm Michael Baldwin, Bruce. Michael Baldwin, Bruce. Michael Baldwin, Bruce. Is your name not Bruce? No, it's Michael. That's going to cause a little confusion. Mind if we call you Bruce to keep it clear? Gentlemen, I think we'd better start the faculty meeting. Before we start there, I'd ask the Padre for a prayer. Oh, Lord, we beseech thee. Amen. 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 Crack dudes. Now, I call upon Bruce to officially welcome Mr. Baldwin to the philosophy faculty. I'd like to welcome the pommy bastard to God's own earth. And remind him that we don't like stuck-up sticky beaks here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well spoken, spoken, Bruce. Bruce teaches classical philosophy. Bruce there teaches Hegelian philosophy. And Bruce here teaches logical positivism. And is also in charge of the sheep dip. What's new Bruce going to teach? New Bruce will be teaching political science. Machiavelli, Bentham, Locke, Hobbes, Sutcliffe, Linwald, Miller, Hassett and Bernard. Those are all cricketers. I'll spit howls of derisive laughter, Bruce. Australia, 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 Australia. We love you. Amen. Amen. Another tune. Any questions? Yeah, Bruce. Are you a pufter? Are you a pufter? No. No, right. I just want to remind you of the faculty rules. Rule one. No, no pufters. Rule two. No member of the faculty is to maltreat the abos in any way at all. If there's anybody watching. Rule three. No, no pufters. pufters. Rule four. Now this term, I don't want to catch anybody not drinking. Rule five. No, no pufters. pufters. Rule six. There is no... Rule six, rule seven. No posters. Right, that concludes the reading of the rules. Bruce. This here is the wattle, the emblem of our land. You can stick it in a bottle, you can hold it in your hand. Amen. Emmanuel Kant was a real piss and was very rarely stable. I digger, I digger was a boozy beggar who could think you under the table. David Hume could out consume Will on Friedrich Hegel. And Wittgenstein was a beery swine who was just as lost as Schlegel. There's nothing Nietzsche couldn't teach about the raising of the wrist. Socrates himself was permanently pissed. Yo
on Stuart Mill of his own free will on half a shandy was particularly ill played over the say could sing it away half a grain of whiskey every day Aristotle Aristotle was a bugger for the bottle half was fond of his tram and Rene Descartes was a drunken fart I drink therefore I am yes Socrates himself is particularly missed a lovely little thinker but a bugger when he's pissed Little bit of Monty Python there on Dave's Gong by. It's 11.49 in the morning here at the University of Northern Colorado and snowy Greeley. Sorry about some of the uh, the microphone trouble that we've been having recently. It just turns out that um, there are two microphones on this one pot on the board. So I, I finally having discovered that, I have to hold one in my hand and have the other like next to me, not get them too close in, in case of feedback, not make it too loud, also in case of feedback, and also not tap too much against this one that I'm holding. So it's a big of a mess here, but but nothing really unusual for this radio station, I'm afraid. But it's really been delightful so far doing this show, talking to people like Carol Demas. Uh, I wish I had a bit more time with her. That was a, a great chat with her. And, of course, Bruce J. Friedman, the author of Steam Bath and Scuba Duba and the, the novels Stern and uh, the movie Stir Crazy. Really, really great Great stuff. So glad I, I lined up this show. And we're not finished yet. We have more than an hour to go on this 369th edition of Dave's Gone By on uncradio.com. I'm trying to look at the sponsors here. Well, so you see this, this microphone in my hand has no pull on it. So I have to be near it and I can't pull it near me, which means I have to take this notebook of our sponsors and put it on my lap in order to see it. Here we go. <sighs> Let's see, who's playing in town that I need to tell you about? There's a band called Vices I Admire that is having a CD release party on this coming Friday, December 9th, at the Bluebird Theater in Denver. The opening acts include Take to the Oars, Genre Theory, and Microdots. Vices I Admire at the Bluebird Theater, December 9th. Tickets are available at AEG Live. Dot com. Also wanted to let you know that the new professional team in Greeley, Colorado, plays at Butler Hancock Auditorium right here in UNC. ABA basketball is fun and exciting, and, uh, you know, we, we haven't had national um, professional basketball because of the strike. It's not coming back until towards Christmas. So why not check out the Cougars' next game? And it's tonight, December 3rd, and tickets are only $10. For more information, go to abacougars.com. See professional basketball right here in Greeley at the Butler Hancock Auditorium. And let's see. The Marquee Magazine also sponsors programs on UNC Radio. Uh... An independent Colorado magazine that covers the regional live music scene in print and online. With the region's most thorough concert calendar, Marquee is designed for music freaks by music freaks. For more information, go to marqueemag.com, M-A-R-Q-U-E-E, mag.com. The Marquee, live for live music. And finally, uh, as, far as, um, as far as the sponsors for this Radio station, uncradio.com. Remember, if you love UNC Student Radio, let the Student Senate know if you are a student here at UNC. 
Tell them what you love about us. Email them at student.voice at unco.edu. Student.voice at unco.edu. So if you uh, like the show that I do with the special guests that we have, the music that I play, uh, the rabbi, whatever it is, and, and you want to hear more of it, Tell the student senate that you care about shows like this, or if you prefer um, the, the kind of hip-hop and up-tempo music that we play uh, throughout most of the mornings and the late nights, or if you like certain student shows that they have on during the week. I mean, it's going to be kind of quiet now up until mid-January when classes start up again. But if, if you love the eclecticism of one show having reggae and dub, but followed by another show that has electronica music, followed by another show that has country-western followed by a sports talk show, followed by a a show about sexual topics, whatever it is. That's the point of having a station like UNC Radio. So please write to student.voice at unco.edu and tell them that radio is the best program on campus. Letting you know also that um, sponsors for this particular radio program, Dave's Gone By, include Hewlett Minuteman Press, the copy kings of Broadway. Since the mid-1970s, the Torong family have owned and operated UNC... uh, (laughs) They have not owned and operated UNC Radio. They've owned and operated Hewlett Minuteman Press, right in the heart of Hewlett, Long Island, across the street from the Lomans and the Burger King, and like three blocks from the Hewlett train station. And this is the place to go for all your copying, printing, binding needs. If you need... Uh, holiday cards made up, this is the place to go. If you want to put your uh, company logo on a 2012 calendar, go to Hewlett Minuteman Press. They are proud sponsors of Dave's Gone By, and if you mention that Dave sent you, you get 10% off any job, big or small. You, you do one copy and it's 10 cents? Uh-uh. Mention Dave, it's only 9 cents. Spend $1,000 there? Hundred bucks off if you mention Dave or Dave's Gone By. Hewlett Minuteman Press. They are the kings. This program is also brought to you by TotalTheater.com. This is a free website where you can read reviews of theater from all over the world. Broadway, off-Broadway, international reviews, and feature stories, interviews with major people on and off-Broadway and doing theater all over the place. In fact, we just... um. Just this week, we put on a review from a couple of reviews from Paris and also from Broadway. And uh, you'd have to check it out, and it's absolutely free. Go to totaltheater.com. And Dave's Gone By is brought to you by Performing Arts Insider, the Bible of Broadway since the mid 1940s. This is not a website, this is an actual hard copy magazine, a journal. You get it in the mail. You can read it actually at your desk, on the train, uh, you know, in a car if you're a really, really good and attentive driver. And it tells you everything you need to know about the stages of New York. All the little detailed information of when shows are opening and closing and what big stars might be coming to Broadway in the months and years ahead. Also, how to contact designers and actors and directors and, um, and managers and producers. All that little contact information is there. So this is the, the journal that the industry uses, the entertainment, the film, the television people. They use and they turn to it religiously. It is the Bible of Broadway, Performing Arts Insider. So please find out more at performingartsinsider.com, Performing Arts Insider. 
Com. And finally, a shout-out to Jeff Goodman, my good friend Jeff, who owns and operates Fancy Schmancy Balloons out on Long Island. If you're having a party in the tri-state area, Jeff is the man to go to because he will make it look wonderful. He does not just, you know, it's not like he does balloon animals. No, he makes balloon archways, these beautiful creations. He will do centerpieces for your tables. And if you are putting a party together and you don't know first thing about it, you need a caterer, you need a photographer, you need a band, go through Jeff. Jeff can put your party together. He knows the people if you're in the tri-state area. So please do contact Jeff Goodman out on Long Island. Let me give you his number, 516-797-3229. 516-797-3229. Shouldn't your party be a fancy schmancy one. Well, it is 11.58 in the morning here in Colorado. I'm not sure how much more snow is going to be coming down. We've certainly had enough of it so far. We'll give you a weather report in a little while, but we're only two minutes away from noon, and so it's just time enough to tell you that um, we have a few more things to do on Dave's Gone By in the next hour, including a visit from Rabbi Saul Solomon, who will offer his weekly rabbinical reflection on Coca-Cola. A story about them in the news. Coca-Cola, Rabbi Saul talking about them. And also, we will have, uh, let's see, our Saturday segue of songs uh, honoring rock birthdays. A lot of people are having birthdays this week in the music field. People like Little Richard and Tom Waits, and uh, so who else do I have? Well, you'll just have to stay tuned. I know we've got uh, ooh, Ozzy Osbourne, too. Yeah, that's coming up as well on Dave's Gone By, but it is now almost noon, and time for Bob Dylan, Sooner and Later. It's a bunch of Bob Dylan songs that we play every week just because, well, it's he's Bob Dylan. And so we will, um, this particular edition of Bob Dylan sooner and later, is going to be dedicated to uh, Don DeVigo. He was a producer on several Bob Dylan's albums, several of his very best albums, including, let's see, where is my uh, my Dylan sooner and later page? Did I misplace it? Well, oh, I have it, some of it here. He was 72 years old, and he died after a very long battle with prostate cancer. He produced Blood on the Tracks, Desire, Hard Rain, Street Legal, and the Bugacan Live album, as well as uh, he was involved in the Folkways of Vision Shared tribute to Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly Collection concert for uh, New York City a few years back. So Don DeVigo, kind of an important guy in the sound and feeling of Bob Dylan's albums from that crucial mid and late 1970s period. And so we're going to hear a bunch of songs from those albums I just mentioned. Let us begin with, um, well, Go and Go and Go On. Well, I just reached a place Where I can't stay awake I got to leave you, baby Before my heart will break Come over here, baby 
conversation was short and sweet. It nearly swept me off of my feet, and I'm back in the rain.
Black Diamond Bay from Bob Dylan, a classic from the equally classic Desire album here on Dave's Gone by wrapping up the Bob Dylan sooner and later se- <clears throat> excuse me, segment for this Saturday morning or early afternoon, December 3rd, 2011, as part of Dave's Gone By. As I mentioned, we do a Bob Dylan segment every week here on the show, and this particular one was dedicated to producer Don DeVito, who died this past week at age 72. He was the producer on four of Bob Dylan's albums, including uh, the, the, the four that we just heard, which were... Da-da-da, Sorry, I always lose that page that I need when I need it. There it is. Blood on the Tracks, Desire, Hard Rain, Street Legal, and Budokan. Let's see, we heard, I think, something from every single... Oh, we didn't hear anything from Hard Rain. I'm sorry. You know what? We have a little extra time. That's shameful of me. We heard... um, I might as well tell you by looking at the MySpace page for the show. We heard... Going, Going, Gone, the live version from the Bugacon collection. We heard We Better Talk This Over from Street Legal, You're a Big Girl Now, the great song from Blood on the Tracks, and of course Black Diamond Bay on Desire. All four of those albums produced by Don DeVito. And, and just love in the sound on Desire, uh, Scarlett Rivera's violin and the, the whip crack of the drum on that album. I've always liked It's very sharp and clear. And uh, let's see, how can I forget the amazing live album, really Dylan's best live album, uh, Hard Rain. And let's hear the rockinest track on it, Shelter from the Storm, to conclude our Bob Dylan Sooner and Later segment.
so amazing to remember when Bob Dylan could sing and shout like that. From hard rain, shelter from the storm. As I said, uh, this Bob Dylan sooner and later segment dedicated to the late producer Don DeVito, who uh, worked on that album as well as Street Legal Desire and the uh, the very very great Blood on the Tracks. On Dave's Gone By, it is twelve twenty eight in the afternoon here, Mountain Time, at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley, Colorado. You're listening to UNC Radio via uncradio.com on your internets and. And also on Channel 3 on your dorm room TVs. Going to give you a bit of a weather update here. Uh, yeah. They weren't kidding when they said our storm a few days ago would have uh, another tail end coming in and hitting us again. We got some snow this morning. Uh, cold day also. High only going to kick up to 22 degrees. It's currently, well, it's a... You know, Yahoo is amazing. It's like the high today is 22 degrees, and it says, though, that the temperature is 25 degrees. I mean, it's 2011. You think they could get the current weather right? I can understand how you can mispredict a little bit tomorrow's weather, depending on the way the winds blow and the clouds go. But, you know, if you're going to tell me about the weather right now, don't tell me right in on the same page in the same moment that the high is 22 degrees and then right next to it say that the high is currently 25 degrees. <laughs> Craziness! Anywho, well, enjoy it. Be, be happy that it's three degrees warmer than they predicted the high to be in the first place. So the low is going to be all the way down, so they say, to zero tonight, zero degrees Fahrenheit. Cold, cold stuff, some cloudiness. Uh, and then tomorrow, real cold day. The high is going to be uh, only, again, around 25 degrees, a little bit of wind. Tomorrow night, oh, great, more snow showers early, becoming more scattered later. Nearly record low temperatures tomorrow night, Sunday night, down one degree, which is fine. I mean, everybody's going to be cramped into the library and in your dorms and your apartments studying for finals anyway. So it's a good excuse not to go schlepping in the ice and the snow. You know, get your work done. Chance of snow tomorrow night, 40%. Uh, snow accumulations, though, expected not to be uh, more than an inch. However, they did not expect the morning snow today to be more than an inch, and it sure looks like more than that to me. Monday, a little more snow showers, highs in the mid-teens and lows all the way back down to zero and a little below. Finally, Tuesday, we're going to get back into the 30s again. Still cold nights, of course. And then Wednesdays, we might even touch the low 40s. So, yeah, sorry, folks. So many times I get on here on a Saturday morning and I say, oh, ho, ho, fantastic weather, just going to get better day after day. It's the 50s, it's the 80s, it's whatever. Not this time. Got to get through some pretty nasty weather. And, uh, well, it is December, although it's not technically winter yet. And we are into our fourth snowstorm here, but at least it looks like we're not going to get more snow today. So, you know, get the shovels out, get your work done, and hey, enjoy the music on uncradio.com. And thanks for listening to Dave's Gone By here every Saturday from 10 until 1. If you want to get in touch, Remember that my email is davesgoneby at aol.com. If you want to see the playlist for all the songs that we put on the show, just go to our MySpace page, myspace.com, and then search for Dave's Gone By. Or if you wait a day or two, you can hear the whole episode. We archive them. Yes, we do, for free on davesgoneby.com. Almost every episode we've ever done of Dave's Gone By is archived on 
our homepage. Just scroll right down. First, you'll see a list of the shows by uh, alphabetically by the guests who have appeared on the program. And I'm talking everybody from Tom Paxton to Neil Sedaka, Christine Lavin, Jane Sibbery, Joe, uh, Joe Franklin, and recently people like Bonnie Franklin. And, of course, in a day or two we'll have up today's guests, Carol Demas and Bruce J. Friedman. So all you got to do is scroll down, see that list of the famous people who have been on here, or if you scroll all the way down, you'll get to our chronological listing where every show that we've done that we've been able to save chronologically listed with hyperlinks. If you left-click, that means you can just stream the show right on your computer. If you right-click, you can download it to your hard drive or to your iPod and listen anytime. davesgoneby.com is the URL. Well, it is 12.32 in the afternoon and time, <clears throat> pardon me, for Inside Broadway, telling you what's going on on the stages of New York. Not a lot of big news this week. It's, it's still kind of quiet as we head into the holidays. But uh, they've cast, done a little more casting for the Broadway musical Rebecca that is coming up in April. Karen Mason, who was a guest on this show a couple of years back, she will be playing um, in the musical alongside Sierra Bogus. Bogus was cast a while ago. She was in The Little Mermaid on Broadway. She'll be playing Rebecca. And James Barber is in it. John Dossett, Donna English. It all opens April 22nd at Broadway's Broadhurst Theater, based on the novel by Daphne du Maurier about a young wife who is brought to a Western England country estate. Kind of one of those, you know, it's not a Frank Wildhorn musical, but it kind of sounds like it ought to be, or, or maybe a, a uh, an Andrew Lloyd Webber show, but it's not. It's Rebecca, and it's coming to Broadway in just a couple of months. Also, uh, Feinstein's, the cabaret, the high-level swanky cabaret club in New York, Feinstein's at the Regency, has announced its winter roster of performers. And those include Lucy Arnaz, Ruben Studdard, uh, Linda Edder, she was a guest here on Dave's Gone By a couple of years ago, Marilyn May, also a former Dave's Gone By guest, as well as, dig this, Petula Clark, remember downtown? She will be performing at Feinstein's, as well as, of course, the perennial and wonderful Barbara Cook. Little Anthony and the Imperials will be there, and they will have the return of Our Sinatra in January. That uh, off-Broadway musical review will be playing at Feinstein's. And dig this. At some point, it's just a one-nighter, but they're bringing in a show featuring Jake LaMotta, the raging bull himself, uh, and his fiance. I guess it's a nightclub act about his life, kind of like they showed at the end of Raging Bull. He's 90 years old, and he'll be doing this gig at Feinstein's. Sure sounds interesting. Anyway, that's the roster over at Feinstein's at the Regency. A couple of um, bad news things to mention in Inside Broadway. First of all, we lost Alan Seuss. He was in basically best known for Laugh-In, but he did some serious and not-so-serious off-Broadway and Broadway plays. He died this week. Also, Ken Russell died last Sunday, November 27th. He was age 84. He had had a series of strokes. He's best known, of course, as a film director of 1969's Women in Love. He was also the director of Tommy, the Who film and Listomania, the other Who film, and Altered States was his most commercially recognized film. He also did a, a really 
uh, kind of a scary gothic movie called The Devils that's finally coming out on DVD and it's definitely worth a look. I remember seeing it and hearing, oh, it's, it's weird, it's hard to follow, it's scary, creepy, bad. It's actually very good. So, so The Devils, based on the Aldo Huxley book, coming out in uh, just a little while from him. I didn't know that um, Ken Russell started as a merchant marine before he had a nervous breakdown, which explains a lot of things. He was married four times in his life. Uh, and, and, and this is him talking about his 1987 movie, Gothic. Everyone in England in the 19th century was on a permanent trip. Uh, he must have been stoned out of his mind for years. I know that I am. <laughs> Ken Russell, yeah, marked by excess and experimentation, but you know what? The excess and craziness of 20 years ago suddenly becomes the standard vision of today. So definitely worth looking up the movies of this man who died last Sunday at age 84. And also, uh, some sad news, we lost Edwin Judd Walden. Uh, well, he was 86 years old. He died also last Sunday. Rutgers graduate. He was also in that BMI Lehman Engel workshop, so celebrated in the uh, the musical A Class Act, where all these Broadway people, composers, got their start. He... He's really best known with combining with lyricist Robert Britton on the adaptation of the play A Raisin in the Sun into the 1973 Broadway musical Raisin. And so, um, yeah, he also had some other shows, a lot of them off-Broadway, like Johan and... Um, jo I think it was Jonah. I think I... <laughs> I dyslexicized that at the York Theater in 2004, and he got really good reviews for a show called Little Ham that was at the Hudson Guild Theater in 2002. He had a lot of regional success with a family musical called The Prince and the Pauper back in the early 1990s. But again, he's really, you know, it really all comes back to raisin for him. And so let's, um, let's bid farewell uh, to the late Judd Walden with a song from Raisin, gotta find it here. How about, let's see, yeah, the finale to the show. This is the entire company from the Broadway musical Raisin. Farewell, Judd Walden.
the finale from the Broadway musical Raisin. Uh, the whole company they're joining in for a gospel tune appropriate for the loss of Edwin Judd Walden, who passed away last Sunday at age 86. That concludes our Inside Broadway segment for this edition of Dave's Gone By. Kind of, kind of a sad one, I must say. But yeah, we'll take us through January, February, and then March. We'll really start talking about a bunch of happy news and Broadway shows and things like that. Anyway... Time to move on and get to our Saturday segue um, for this particular edition of Dave's Gone By. I haven't forgotten about it. I normally do them much earlier in the show, but it's still here. And it's going to be a really cool one because we're going to celebrate some rock birthdays this week of uh, really major folks who are celebrating the big day in the days ahead. And so, without further ado, let us begin with the man who is turning... You know, you figure he, they ought to be a little bit older because it feels like so long ago. I, I, that may be not, not be nice to say. But Little Richard is only turning 79 on December 5th uh, this week. So yeah, it just feels like he ought to be a lot older, but I'm glad he's not. And I'm glad uh, hopefully that he's well and, and still, I guess he's also doing gospel music or whatever he's doing these days. But either way, it's wonderful to go back in time and hear him when he was just in his teens shaking up and changing the rock musical landscape with songs like Jenny Jenny.
One of the many extraordinary numbers in uh, the album Alice from Tom Waits. That's Barcarolle. It's the second to last song on the album that kind of wraps everything up before a final instrumental. Amazing, amazing stuff. And happy birthday to Tom Waits. He will be turning 62 years old on December 7th. That's this coming week. We did a birthday segment here for a bunch of people in, uh, well, they're not in the neighborhood, but we salute them from the neighborhood. Checking the playlist on our MySpace page, we heard from Little Richard doing Jenny Jenny. Little Richard will turn 79 this week. We also have Joan Armitrading from her wonderful first album, one of my favorite songs of hers, City Girl. She was born December 9th, 1950, which means she turned 61 on this upcoming December 9th. That'll be on Friday, I believe. And then it's one of the rare times, don't blink, you actually heard Ozzy Osbourne and Black Sabbath on Dave's Gone By. Actually, a pretty little number called Goodbye to Romance. The Ozman, the Oster, will be turning 63 years old uh, today. Happy birthday, Ozzy Osbourne. Yay. And uh, Sinead O'Connor, we also heard from from that, that wonderful EP that she did called Gospel Oak with This Is a Rebel Song. And Sinead is 45. My God, she's younger than I am. She, on December 8th, she will turn 45 years old. That is our Saturday segue for Dave's Gone By for this week. And look at that. It's one in the afternoon here, Mountain Time. You're listening to UNC Radio, uncradio.com. And the show is 
these Daves gong by, and I feel like, okay, what better way to close the show than with Tom Waits doing Barker Roll? But then I remembered while I was playing it that for the second week in a row, I don't know, it must be a mental block, or maybe it was because I was so involved with him over the past few weeks, and now I need a little break, but we have not yet invited Rabbi Saul Solomon in for his rabbinical reflection of the week. Rabbi Saul is here and has been here uh, as part of the show on and off since our very first one back in 2002. Now we have him here virtually every week giving his sermon, his benediction, his thoughts on events and stories in the news. And this particular time, Rabbi Saul is here to comment on a story about Coca-Cola that uh, hit Yahoo News and other outlets this week, where they tried to do something new. They tried to do something different, but Coca-Cola has a history of being problematic when they try something different. And so here are Rabbi Solomon's thoughts about Coca-Cola on his rabbinical reflection of the week. This is Rabbi Saul Solomon with a rabbinical reflection for the week of December 4th, 2011. You know what the easiest job in the world is? No, not ranting on the radio. I don't get paid for that. The easiest job in the world is selling Coca-Cola. It's been around for a hundred years. Everybody drinks it. Every grocery stocks it. You go into a shack in Malawi and say, Barack Obama, they look at you like you're from another planet. But you say, Coca-Cola, oh, they start dancing around, they're laughing, they want you to marry their cousin. Selling Coca-Cola is as easy as saying, hi, you want to buy some Coca-Cola? Yes, you have Pepsi as a competitor, and those 99-cent, two-liter generic brands that say they're cola, but we all know it's just Rust-Oleum with corn syrup. Financially, Coke might have a great year, or it might have an almost great year, but really, It's like asking the Sultan of Brunei at his roulette game, did you lose $3,000 or $30,000? Either way, he's not losing any sleep. Unless he drinks Coca-Cola, in which case the caffeine will keep him up if the harem girls won't. So, okay, here is how you sell Coca-Cola. You concoct it, you mix it, you put it in the bottle, you ship it from the factory, and you cash the checks. The beverage itself may have a secret formula, But everybody knows Coke's formula for success. Step one, give people what they want and what they have always wanted. Step two, repeat step one. Now, we all remember years ago when the marketing geniuses at Coke felt they had to justify their inflated salaries by doing something new. To be fair, it can't be much fun promoting an item when you know deep down the marketing strategy you've used for the past 10 years, you could really use for the next 50. And in the advertising and PR world, nobody gets a bonus for thinking inside the box. Unfortunately, in the real world, you know who thinks outside the box? Homeless people. They sleep in a box, then they go outside it to think. And you know what some of them are thinking? They're thinking... Shit, I used to be an executive of Coca-Cola until I invented new Coke. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? 
It's one of the oldest sayings in the world. And if you think you know better, if you think you're going to prove the world wrong, get ready, if you fail, to fall on your tush into a cardboard box. Twenty-six years ago, New Coke hit the market like a bottle of cancer, and it's been an industry laughingstock and object lesson ever since. So, you figured the Coke folks would learn from their mistake. Red label, white letters, brown fizz, rule the world. But no, in the news this week was a story about Coca-Cola using a special design for the holidays. Instead of a red background, they went with a white background and red letters, plus those cute little polar bears. All well and good, except the public took one look and said, Wait a minute, is this regular Coke or Diet Coke? Somehow, the scientific gurus in the Coca-Cola Utility Research Kitchen missed the fact that white cans equals low calorie equals tastes like battery acid. So... People started bitching and writing to the company and returning the cans demanding the old stuff. Weirder still, even people who were not confusing the regular with the diet, even when they knew it was the same stuff, some of them complained the cola tastes different in the silver can. Don't ask me if it's psychological, or maybe the old red cans still have traces of cocaine in them, all I know is that it's been another PR nightmare for Coke. They've had to go back and reinstate the red cans, and somebody in R&D is getting a lump of coal for their Christmas bonus. Now, I don't have a problem with innovation, but it seems all the innovations these days are negative ones. Oh, let's take a 10-ounce bag of potato chips and put only 8 ounces of chips in it while charging the same price. American ingenuity at its finest. Or, all those HDTV 3D television sets. You can watch a Pixar movie. It looks like you've jumped into their universe. However, almost everything else you watch is in 1D, low definition. So your 50-inch Samsung has all the visual beauty of a hallway security monitor. And don't get me started on airplanes charging you extra for a sandwich and more inches of legroom and a place to stow your luggage. America is innovating us out of house and home. Again, it's not as if the Coca-Cola people started sneaking X-lax into the formula. They wouldn't have to, but even so. And it's not as if they did something racist or dangerous or mean-spirited. They just wanted Coke to be part of the seasonal onslaught of merry merchandising. Skeptical people might say they had nothing to lose from the design disaster. If it worked, it worked. When it didn't, look at all the free and not especially damaging publicity they got. Maybe it was all part of some master plan to keep Coke in the news. I'm not that cynical. I'll grant them an honest mistake. But either way, if they want to sell their product, save money, and have the simplest marketing plan imaginable, all they have to do is hire me. I work cheap and I work smart. I will sit there at my desk and ask the different departments the only questions that matter. Does Coca-Cola still taste disgustingly sweet yet refreshingly corrosive? On Thanksgiving, can you fry a turkey or a moose in it? Is it still a dentist's best friend? Can it still remove the paint from a 1987 Ford Taurus? Yes? Great. 
sign my paycheck, we're good for a decade. Oh, and pour me another Dr. Brown's cream soda. Regular, not diet, extra foam, and don't be Jewish with the ice cubes. This has been a rabbinical reflection from Rabbi Sal Solomon, Temple Sons of Bitches. I like to teach the world to sing. Sing with me. Ah, yes. No, nobody quite has the uh, the perspective on the news and current events that Rabbi Saul Solomon does here on Dave's Gone By. Also, please, if, if you missed part of it uh, or you want to hear it again, you can catch Rabbi Saul Solomon's rabbinical reflections on his website, shalomdammit.com. The text is archived there. And also, he has YouTube clips of the text and audio. Just look for Shalom Dammit or Rabbi Saul Solomon on YouTube. You can see clips of his uh, reflections and also clips from his TV show from a couple of years back. So, shalomdammit.com, davesgoneby.com for archives of this program, our MySpace page for our playlist, our Twitter accounts. Let's see, we have, um, uh, there's a Twitter for Rabbi Saul Solomon. I think it's Shalom Dammit on Twitter. Also, Radio Dave 2, if you want to tweet me or receive tweets from me. I only really tweet once, tweet once a week when I'm letting people know what's on the show. But uh, hey, if you certainly Rabbi tweets once or twice a week, and you don't want to miss his pearls of wisdom, more like onions of wisdom, really. But um, what else do I want to tell you? Oh, if you want to email me about this program to make suggestions and comments, Dave's gone by at AOL.com is the place to do that. D-A-V-E-S-G-O-N-E-B-Y at AOL.com. And that also gets you on our weekly email list so that you can get, uh, you'll know what we're doing on the show just in case you forget to check the website. And you'll know that next week on Dave's Gone By, we'll be talking to not one, but two long-term radio broadcasters in New York. One of them is David Kenny, and he's been hosting a cabaret show, uh, cabaret and also theater music program on New York's WBAI for, I think, two decades now. It's called Everything Old is New Again, based on the Peter Allen song. And so, uh, yeah, I thought it would be really cool to talk to him about doing a show like that in an environment that, uh, well, a New York environment that isn't necessarily conducive to that kind of music anymore. So, yeah, David Kenny from WBAI will be with us next week and also long, long-term broadcaster, uh, first in the commercial radio world, and now he's on WFUV-FM in New York, the Fordham radio station there, Pete Fornatel. And I always name-check him, or, or usually remember to, when I do my Saturday segues here and group a bunch of songs around a certain theme, well, I don't know if he invented the form, but he's been the one who's really been doing it for years and years and years on his show. As a matter of fact, he's on Saturday afternoons. So after this program, you can go right to FUV, and uh, I think he starts at 4 o'clock Eastern time. Not 100% sure on that, but Pete Fornatel from WFUV. He will also be in the neighborhood next week, December 10th, 
on UNC Radio. Before I go, I, mean, I know we're running a little bit over time, but I do have to name check some friends of the neighborhood. Those are people who have been on the show in weeks and years past. Once they're on the show, they become family. And so, a big shout-out to Linda Lavin. She's doing a concert at Birdland, 315 West 44th Street in Manhattan. That's on Monday, December 5th, two days from now. Check it out. For more information, 212-581-3080. 212-581-3080 to see Linda Lavin at Birdland. Also on that Monday, Piega Brown will be coming to the living room on Ludlow Street for a CD release party for her new album, Mercury. We talked to Piega a couple of uh, weeks ago and played a bunch of tracks on it. It's really good. So, for more information about her engagement at the living room this Monday, 212-533-7237. 533-7237. And if you're free that afternoon, don't miss Phyllis Newman reading and singing lessons from the book What's New at the Zoo. That will be at 3.30 in the afternoon at the Barnes & Noble on 82nd Street, 2289 Broadway. For more information on Phyllis Newman doing that, 212-362-8835, 362-8835. Also, starting December 6th, Tova Feldshu, she was a guest in the neighborhood in 2008. She will be playing Mama Rose in Gypsy, one of the ultimate dream roles of any musical theater actress. Tova Feldshu uh, doing Mama Rose at Bristol Riverside Theater in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. She'll be there through the month of December. Jason Grah is bringing back his cabaret show Perfect Harmony to the Laurie Beachman Theater in Midtown Manhattan. That's this week, December 7th and December 8th. He's brought it back for two nights. And then from December 9th through the 12th, visit the Barrow Street Theater to see those wonderful improv duo, that wonderful improv duo, TJ and Dave. They come in every few weeks uh, to do their very acclaimed show. They're usually in Chicago. TJ and Dave at the Barrow Street Theater, December 9th through the 12th. And um, letting you know a week ahead of time that next Saturday, December 10th, there will be the official reunification of the Randy Bandits at Brooklyn's Branded Saloon on Vanderbilt Avenue in Brooklyn, New York. The Randy Bandits were here, oh, quite a few years ago. A really good folk country-ish band. And I think they have at least two albums out. Really worth hearing. Uh, oh, 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 oh I, still a few more friends of the day. It's so great when you have all these guests and they're so busy. And you can announce, hey, these folks who were on my show, they're doing amazing things. Like uh, Lorca Perez, who is um, going to be doing a directing a new play at the hmm, what theater? The West End Theater on West 86th Street in Manhattan from December 8th through the 24th. It's a show called The Temple of Souls. It's a love story set, um, I don't think it's during any kind of civil war, but it involves a Spanish person and a Puerto Rican person and the cultural wars between them. And, and this show, dig this, this was written by Lorca Perez's 95-year-old grandmother, Anita Velez Mitchell. You will remember her because she was on this show with Lorca uh, a couple of years back. Was, they were a wonderful team. So this play is by her and directed by her daughter and keeping it all in the family. The sister, Anika Paris, 
is in the show as well. So Lorca directing, Anika Paris in it, written by Grandma Anika Velez Mitchell. Sounds pretty good to me. December 8th through the 24th at the West End Theater. Everybody um, wanted to let you know that Joel Sandberg, the grandson of Benny Bell, has recorded a holiday shaving cream. I don't have time to play it today. Uh, I don't have time to do anything today. I'm already almost 20 minutes over time. But his version of shaving cream, a brand newly recorded version, is on CD Baby. He's also got um, a hearable on YouTube. Just look for sh- for holiday shaving cream. Joel Sandberg. And, and check it out. It's kind of cute. I'll try and play it next week or, or closer to the holidays. Based, of course, on his grandpa's classic novelty song, Shaving Cream. Frank Wildhorn, uh, he was a guest here in 2005. He has written the score for the new Broadway musical Bonnie and Clyde, which just opened three, four days ago at Broadway's Gerald Schoenfeld Theater. Uh, the critics will just never be into Frank Wildhorn. They, I thought he had a, a shot with this one. I haven't seen it. They were fairly kind, but not particularly comprom- complimentary, although audiences seem to like it a bit, and they really like the two leads. So, who knows? Maybe it has a shot. If you want to see it, it's at Broadway's Gerald Schoenfeld Theater, Bonnie and Clyde, the new, brand-new Broadway musical. Carrie Hoffman still doing My Sinatra at the Ha Comedy Club. Christine Petty in Miss Abigail's Guide to Dating, Mating, and Marriage at Sophia's. She's in there for several weeks, so do catch her. Jim Caruso's Cast Party happens every Monday night at Birdland. Everyone, please subscribe to drdemento.com and visit San Francisco Weekly to get on the mailing list to read Alan Sherstool's Studies in Crap column. It's consistently and wonderfully hilarious. Man, the, the Friends of the Neighborhood list just gets... I need a whole extra show just to do the people who've already been on the show. And also, of course, for the thank yous that we have to do. Thank you so much to Bruce J. Friedman and to Carol Demas for being wonderful guests here on the Neighborhood. We'd love to hear also certainly more from Carol because uh, we were just getting started when we, we got waylaid by some really interesting stuff but didn't get to talk about Broadway or the Fantastics or any of that. So got to have her on again really, really soon. Catch her in the bunches of things that she's doing over the next couple of weeks, including Gypsy of the Year Monday and Tuesday, the big benefit concert that Broadway does for Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS. Tickets are um, they're pricey, but they're not that expensive considering the huge entertainment value that you're getting and that it is a benefit. Or you can also see Carol do her... Um, her cabaret shows in Irvington, New York, and a couple of other places, just go to her website, caroldemas.com, C-A-R-O-L-E-D-E-M-A-S.com. Also, uh, check out Bruce J. Friedman's new book, Lucky Bruce, his memoir from Biblioasis Books. And thank you very much, by the way, to Breath, to Beth Krakauer at Singa Media Promotions for helping line up the interview with Carol, and to Molly Mikulowski, for laying up the interview with Bruce J. Friedman. Thank you, as always, to Sam Wood, the general manager of this radio station, for his help and support. And, of course, to my darling and wonderful wife, Joyce Weil, who has a little bit more gregging to do, and then, yes, 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 freedom, freedom just to do all the other work she has to do. Love you, babe. Anyway, it is 1.21 in the afternoon here. 
at uncradio.com. I'm Dave Lefkowitz. You've been listening to Dave's Gone By. Please check the website, davesgoneby.com, for all the information about the show, as well as to hear the archive of this program and bunches of previous episodes that we have done. We're going to go out with Paula Janis and Carol Dimas, taken from their TV show, If you're my age or a little bit younger or certainly a little bit older and you remember watching WPIX Channel 11 years and years ago in New York and uh, you were a kid or a little older than a kid and you wanted to see two cute girls in hippie outfits and singing songs and talking to squirrels, uh, you would hear their opening song that we played earlier. And then when it was all over, this was the song that they would sing. So here's to the Magic Garden and to Carol and Paula, and to all of you. Uh, Watch the snow out there. Watch the ice. It's going to be a cold couple of days. Good luck. Good holidays. Hey, and and good luck on your midterms and your finals and your graduations and stuff. Gone by, and see ya. Say good morning to ya. Hope you'll have a shiny day.